That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, a lot of smoke out there today about Damian Lillard and the Trailblazers. Uh, Trailblazers GM Joe Cronin meeting today with Lillard and his agent to discuss the franchise's plans. Is this the end of an era? Chris Haynes, Yahoo Sports, reported the news. Uh, The relationship between Lillard and the Blazers on solid ground, so to speak, maybe, kind of. I want to know what you make of what could be the end of the Lillard era. Blazers last week on Thursday, draft day, did uh, did what they should do. They did what was best for the organization. They draft uh, Scoot Henderson, pick a player there that anybody drafting third in the draft would have been happy to draft. But uh, a lot of it saw, a lot of people saw that as a move against Lillard. How did you read it as a Blazer fan? How are you feeling today about the trajectory of the franchise? And if it really is the end of the Damian Lillard era, was it worth it? Did the Blazers maximize it? Of course they didn't. They never really put the pieces around Lillard. I don't blame him a bit for being frustrated. Simultaneously, is it fair for me to say I don't blame the Blazers for doing what was right for them last week in the draft? I want your take. 503 417 Seventy-five, seventy-five. I want you to tell me uh, what you think the Trailblazers should do. What should Lillard's play be from this point on? And if you are a, uh, a diehard Blazer fan, are you at all concerned about what might be the end of an era? Or do you sort of see it as uh, just sort of like, hey, this is part of the process. You knew at some point that Team Lillard or Camp Lillard would uh, would be frustrated with uh, the trajectory of the franchise, and you just sort of see it as uh, a progression uh, uh, in Trailblazers history. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I guess I'm asking you, if this is the end of an era, how do you feel about it? Stephen, I want to go to you first, because you are a fan. In addition to being part of the show, you are a true fan. Give us some context for your fandom. How old were you when you first became a Blazers fan? What does it mean to you? What is it? Yeah, uh, so for me, I was uh, born in the Portland area in Milwaukee in 1987. Uh, so I remember watching the Blazers when I was like you know, five or six years old um, with the like the the highlight tapes of the season before. Uh, I forget what they were called, maybe Red Hot and Rolling or something like that. Okay. But I remember it was like I would watch the season tapes and they'd have all the calls from Sean Lee. Um, just you know, highlighting the whole season, doing you know the little documentary style video. I remember watching those with my brother, just growing up, all the time, like every day. That's what I would be watching. So I mean, I remember you know, I've since I've been a, l- a little kid, I've always enjoyed the Blazers, always liked them. And then uh, you know, growing up, 
as I started playing basketball, you know, I uh, was pretty solid at it. And so, you know, I just I always gravitated toward the Blazers um, as being my team since they're the only you know local professional big four sports team here in the area. So it was always the most important team to, and for me uh, to enjoy watching. And then, you know, as I got older and finished college, I, I got the job with the Blazers working their scouting department, which I think was a lot of fun. I learned a lot from them. Um, I will say my my emotional side of my fandom died a little bit when I went to the Blazers uh, and started working for them because it was more of a job rather than a mm. hobby, right? Like I feel like it was less less fun uh, and more of a job. And so then when I did get let go by them, um, there's always a little piece of me that died of my fandom, but I will always, always love the Blazers. And they're, they're very important now, and especially with my kids, uh, eight and four years old. You know, they're really starting to get into sports as well. And they're, you know, especially the oldest one, he loves the Blazers. So I want them to be really good and I want them to compete because he wants them to compete. And I, you know, it's just something that you can bond over with your kids for life because I still, you know, when I see my dad, I'm still talking Blazers with them. I'm still talking sports with them. So I feel like it's very important for me um, that the Blazers try to be relevant at some point uh, once again. Yeah. And, and so when you look at the end of an era, when I say that to you, look, we've seen eras in your lifetime that have begun and ended. Like, you know, before you were born, there was the Bill Walton, Maurice Lucas era. Then came, you know, sort of the Clyde Drexler, uh, Cliff Robinson, Terry Porter, Kevin Duckworth. There was an era there. Uh, then after that, maybe, uh, you know, people will refer to it as the Jailblazers era or maybe just call it maybe before the Jailblazers era. There was uh, a sweet spot where the Blazers came very close to uh, probably winning an NBA championship if they if they were able to overcome the Lakers in that Western Conference Finals game up 15. Let's not bring it up era. Uh, then came the true Jailblazers era, then maybe the Brandon Roy era, then came uh, you know the era maybe currently as uh, Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge turned into Damian Lillard era. There have been other eras. Why does this era feel so sad to me? When, it, when I talk about the end of an era, if it truly is the end of an era, if Damian Lillard and his agent Aaron Goodwin say, hey, we want out, we want to trade. We don't see ourselves as part of the future of the franchise. Or maybe, hey, we're going to give you till the end of the summer. Or we're going to give you till February. Put a team together. Let's see how it looks on the court. It feels sad to me, Stephen, because it, it feels like it never really reached the, the fruition of what it could be. Like Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge, Greg Oden, that era to me comes with a set of crutches, right? Like people were hobbling. Uh, Oden was having surgeries. You go back to the Jailblazers era, I don't know why I see the Yellow Hummer. You go back before then, I see, you know, the, you know, 15-point lead blown in, in the Lakers and Shaq on the alley-oop dunk. Uh, you know, I think there are, you know, sort of iconic moments in an era, and certainly Lillard beating the Oklahoma City Thunder with that 37-foot shot comes to mind. But amid that, I'm left feeling a little flat because I go, gosh, the era, you know, they didn't get everything they could get out of the era. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Dame definitely had a couple of those moments. The Houston shot as well to beat the Rockets at the buzzer to advance the Blazers on the you know for the first series win since those Jailblazers. I think was you know a very important moment as well. I, I think for me it was it is a little underwhelming because they didn't necessarily get to where you wanted them to get. And Dame has been so you know I I hate the saying just loyal like he's been loyal, but he's been so good for the community and he's really he's really adapted to just like the Portland area and rip city. Like he's embraced it and the fans have embraced him. And so it is, it's a little sad that way that they never got to the level that 
you would hope that he can get to because he has embraced the, the entire franchise. And so, you know, if it is, if it is, that's what it is. But I mean, it's, it's not as if, you know, Dame has anything to apologize for. Like he put everything he could out on the court. If he asked to be gone and as you know, if you're the blazers, it may be the best move to deal him at this point. Like that's just the sad truth of it is that they've failed so badly and it just hasn't worked out that they may just need to cut their ties with it and try to start over with the new era. And that new era could be Scoot Henderson. Like it's, it's, it is sad though, because the, he embraced it. He embraced the entire city and he wanted to win in Portland and then it just never, never happened. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I look at it, I put it, you know, I don't think about Lillard at all really as it being any of his fault. I think, you know, and I, I wrote this over the over the weekend, like I'm having a hard time with people who are saying that, you know, the Blazers should have done what was in the best interest of Damian Lillard. Like the Blazers paid Damian Lillard to be part of their team. He is not the franchise. There was a Trailblazers Inc., as Ben Golliver said so famously on the show, there was a Trailblazers Inc. before Damian Lillard, there will be one after him. Just like there was a Blazers organization before Bill Walton, and there was one after him. So it, it, I don't really blame the Blazers for doing what they needed to do last Thursday. I was a little confused, and I guess taken aback by the reaction of local media on Friday and Saturday as they were wishing and hoping that the Blazers were going to trade Scoot Henderson and, you know, give Damian what he wanted, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that there is, doesn't appear to be fair market value out there for the number three pick or Scoot Henderson or Damian Lillard at this point. I feel like the Blazers have to do what's best for the Blazers at this point. I don't really understand all the wishing and hoping and hand-wringing. You would never ask a business, and the Blazers are a business, to take less than fair value, to make a bad deal, and, you know, we all watched, you know, Steve Patterson and John Nash, Blazers president and GM, grandstand in 2004 after trading Rasheed Wallace to the Atlanta Hawks. And, you know, they essentially got pantsed on on national TV in that deal. And, you know, the Hawks turned around and got a better deal for Rasheed trading him to Detroit than the Blazers got and ended up, you know, really putting the franchise in a bad position and I remember them, I was at that news conference that day at Memorial Coliseum when, when Steve Patterson and John Nash sat so proudly on that, on that podium and talked about the end of an era and how you know, it was a watershed moment. And then they went out the next season and won 21 games and threw the arena into bankruptcy. And it was a dismal time in Blazers history. And I can remember thinking, like, gosh, is Paul Allen trying to sell the team? Like, in hindsight, I now wish... He had sold the team, but is he trying to sell the team? Like, what is he trying to do here? And in the end, I'm uh, I'm just left thinking, like, if you're a Blazer fan today, I really do think you have to ask yourself if you're okay with the franchise doing what, what is best for the franchise, even in the face of, you know, it possibly being uh, what's not right for Damian Lillard in the end. I mean, I don't get that. Steven, did you understand any of that, uh, that hand-wringing and people upset last week? I didn't get it. So uh, my sense of it was is fan, the fan base really felt lied to. And, you know, Joe Cronin took over for Neil O'Shea. Every single time he had a press conference, he said, you know, we we're going to build around Damian Lillard. That's the goal is to win a championship with Damian Lillard. It's, it, and it's going to take some time. And every single press conference he had, that's what he said. He even said it after draft night that they still want to win around Dame. But Actions speak louder than words, John. And the actions that he has done has said, well, they want to rebuild. And I think it's okay. Like, I'm okay with him, you know, 
quote unquote lying to the fan base by saying he wants to build around Dame because it is a business. And as the general manager, you have to straddle that line of saying, yeah, I'm going to give you information that I have. And I'm going to tell you some of my plan, but I also got to keep something to the chest. Like I can't, the minute I say I want to rebuild, I want to trade Damian Lillard, that value of Dane goes down right away. And there's, so there's no point of being a hundred percent truthful. We've seen so many examples in sports, whether it's the coaching staff, general managers, players, they lie. This happens. You know, uh, Nick Saban said, do they feel like he lied though? Did he really lie or did he go out and go, Hey, I couldn't find a deal that was, you know, maybe the best deal that I could get. Like, you know, it's not done yet. Well, like, I, 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 think the, I think the difference is, is Neil O'Shea said the same thing. He couldn't find the right deal. And so with Joe Cronin saying he couldn't find the right deal, mm-hmm. it's just the same thing over and over. And so they do feel lied because of it's the O'Shea, and now it's transferred into Cronin. So well, I, I get that. So I feel like but, it yeah. is, it's more of a transfer of it's been lied to by numerous general managers now, and they just want to hear what the actual plan is. But if you just look at what the plan is, it seems like, well, they're going to rebuild because they just drafted three rookies and the three draft picks when they could have traded it. And even Joe Cronin said uh, at the press conference on Saturday when they're introducing the rookies, they were offered stuff for the 23rd pick, and they said no because they like Chris Murray. Yeah, and I think it, you know if you're a Blazer fan, you got to be wondering now what the franchise's move will be. I think it's a good sign if you're the Blazers that Damian Lillard and his agent want to meet. I also think it's uh, a little bit interesting to me to kind of see Blazer fans <laughs> – uh, fretting a little bit over what they perceived as, uh, you know, the Blazers not doing what was in the best interest of Damian Lillard. You know, I think ultimately, if I'm Joe Cronin, I'm making, I'm making the right deal or the right move on uh, on uh, on draft night, and I'm not making a move that is going to be, uh, you know, leave the franchise in a dire position. Uh, and to me, that's ultimately what matters, right? If you're a Blazer fan, I think that. You, you have to acknowledge that this franchise has struggled since the death of Paul Allen, and I think it has struggled even before the death of Paul Allen. As, you know, as we look back and we go, okay, um, you, know, you have a, uh, an opportunity now, if you're a Blazer fan, uh, to decide, like, are you with this franchise or not? And for me, um, you know, I, I, think if, I, I don't blame Blazer fans that are a little bit turned off. I don't blame them at all if they are – looking at you know what is happening and and saying hey I don't trust the franchise that's one thing but I thought the franchise on Thursday had a choice like the franchise on Thursday either drafts Scoot Henderson and gets better and gets a little better and 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 gets a piece of its future or it pivots and goes hey we're just going to cave into Damian Lillard we're going to take less than market value um and you know we'll see what we'll see if we can uh you know, basically pacify him, and oh, by the way, look out, because in very short order, Damian Lillard's contract's going to be up anyway, so I don't really understand, like, from a Blazer fan perspective, if, um, you know, maybe maybe I'm uh, out in left field on this one, but I just kind of felt like, hey, if you're a Blazer fan, uh, you know, why, why would you be all that upset with what is going on? I want to go to the phone lines, 503-417-7575. You tell me what you think, uh, how you feel, if this is the end of an era, truly. Uh, and you tell me, um, you know, if you think that the Blazers got it right last week and this meeting with Aaron Goodwin and Damian Lillard and Joe Cronin, how will it go? I mean, clearly, this meeting is going to be dictated by Aaron Goodwin, 
who will act on the uh, best interest of his client and Damian Lillard. And I think Joe Cronin's just going to kind of share, like, here's the plan. Here's what we tried to do. Let's go to the phone line. Steven, if you can punch up Mike in Portland for me. Mike in Portland, welcome to the show. Hey, John, just, uh, just a couple of some layers to this deal. Uh, I think the franchise did exactly what they needed to do with the scoop. But I don't trust the franchise going forward. I think the I think this end of an era, I think the era died a long time ago mm. in a lot of ways just because uh, ownership. And when Paul Allen died, I agree with you on that deal. And, and Damon, he's like a neighborhood kid that you watch grow up and doesn't reach his full potential. It's sad. To me, it's a sad scenario to watch Damon go through all this deal with a good heart or somebody gets some bad health news or something. I just, it's just, I don't, it hurts, it hurts me to see him continue in this same environment. I'd like to see him go out and do what he needs to do. What does he would do what he needs to do to me? Yeah. All right. Appreciate that. Um, uh, you know, bottom line being, that if you're a Blazer fan, there probably is some part of you that roots for Lillard. But in what way and in what world should you ever put what's best for Damian Lillard in front of what's best for the franchise? Are people telling me that the Blazers have turned you off? And this may be possible. Maybe this is the piece I'm missing. The Blazers have turned you off so much, disappointed you, let you down, misled you, Maybe they've even lied to you. The Blazers have done that to the point where you align yourselves more closely with the experience of a frustrated long-term star player than you do with the pinwheel empire itself. Is that what people are telling me, Stephen? Yeah, I guess. Like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it either. I'm, I'm with you on this because when the Blazers made the pick for Scoop, I loved it. You know, me and you were on the air, and we both loved the pick. And it was the best decision that they could have done. And when you when a guy falls to three like that, you have to take him, no matter what the yes. situation is. And the Trailblazers are not close. They have to upgrade their talent first. And I'm a true believer that the NBA, especially talent, overweighs, uh, you know, fit or need or anything like that. And so the Blazers need to upgrade their talent first and foremost. And that's what they did. And so if it do, if it doesn't fall on Dame's timeline, it's unfortunate. But I also put a little pre, a little blame on Dame. I think Dame should have asked for this four or five years ago. Why didn't he mm. put pressure on the Blazers when he was 27, 28? Well, do you think he wants to be the nice guy? Because I even think today he has requested a meeting with his agent and Joe Cronin. That gets out with Chris Haynes. Now, that doesn't get out unless Damian Lillard wants us to know it's getting out. So he wants the perception that he's being professional here. He is having a meeting with Joe Cronin and Aaron Goodwin, and they are going to have a meeting, and they're going to talk about you know, the future. They're, this is getting serious now. It's very professional. This isn't like you know, James Harden or, or Kevin Durant saying, I want out. Trade me or I won't. You know, It's me or him. This is a very cordial, they're going to have a meeting. I'm sure coffee will be served. You know, it, it just feels professional. Do you think Lillard maybe just doesn't want the perception that he – is whining a little bit here and saying, "Hey, I, I, you know, you didn't do what I wanted you to do, and I may want out." 
Yeah, I think I think it's posturing from both of them because the Blazers don't want to be the bad guy either. The Blazers don't want to. Joe Cronin doesn't want to be the GM that trades Damian Lillard, the all-time leading scorer in franchise history, because that's what he'll be remembered as. No matter what happens, unless he wins a championship, he'll be remembered as that guy. And Dame wants to be remembered as the guy that didn't ask out to Portland. Portland got rid of him, and so I think they it is a big game of chicken right now. And I'm very interested to see if Dame actually ever comes out and says, I want to be traded. And the Blazers would actually win that game of chicken. I don't think it's going to happen. I still think Damian Lillard will be in the Trailblazers uniform game one this season. But I've talked to a lot of people, John, and I think people are flipping their minds. And this is like the first time I'm really hearing from numerous people saying, I don't think Dame's going to be in Portland when the season starts. And I, I'd be surprised unless Dame actually comes out and says, I want to be traded, that the Blazers find a trade offer that they say, you know what, this is good enough, we'll take it. Yeah, interesting. I want to go to Mark in Portland for his perspective as well. Mark, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? Um, I go, uh, I go back to Clyde Drexler. Uh, you know, we, we, Clyde uh, had to get away from here to win a championship, and he led the Blazers to two finals. So, I look at Damon. He's an All Star, but he's he's a six two, six three guard. Uh, you got to put some good players around him to win. I mean, look at Allen Iverson in, in the history. I think Isaiah Thomas, and and of course uh, Seth Curry that down there, you know. But they had some great talent, and right now their their draft choice uh, shows us that they they basically kind of drafted Lillard. I mean, they drafted a point guard, so they they should uh, do whatever they can to leverage and and I think. I, I don't understand why Damon doesn't want to do what Drexler did, what Rasheed Wallace did. Those guys left, and the first year they both left, they won NBA titles with other teams. So he could go to the to the right kind of team, obviously, and be the piece that they're missing. But we have too many pieces to put together, even with Lillard right now. And, you know, this Henderson guy, he's just a young guy, so he's not going to come in. It'd be shocking if he came in the league and took over right away. It's going to take him a few years, so. Everything they did in the draft says they're trading Lillard, to me. Yeah, and I think you may be right that this could be the end of an era. If I'm Damian Lillard, do I want to stick around and watch the team rebuild with the best seat in the house? Probably not. But there is a, another question on the horizon. Is it possible that Lillard, if he goes elsewhere and doesn't win, gets saddled with the tag that you know he wasn't good enough to do it without other players? wasn't good enough to be the guy that was the additive piece. I don't know. I don't know. There's some legacy stuff wrapped in and all this, wrapped up in all this uh, conversation. We'll continue it. Uh, if you're a Blazer fan, I want to know how you're feeling today. We'll give you an update uh, if we get any information out of that meeting. Lillard, Lillard's agent, Joe Cronin, Blazers GM meeting. There's some smoke out there today. We've got the bald-faced truth. We've got a great show for you. Leave it here. I don't know. I grew up, I rooted for teams that were bad teams. My teams all stunk. They were not good. You know, my baseball team was the San Francisco Giants. Uh, they weren't great when I was a kid. They weren't, they didn't have that ballpark that was in downtown San Francisco. Um, and I, um, I suffered with them. And uh, my football team got good. My 49ers, they, but they were bad, you know, for a number of years. Prior to the arrival of Joe Montana, the Niners struggled. And so I, I've been there. I've been there, you know. As and, and the Warriors, they were my other team. I didn't grow up with even run TMC. That kind of came as I went to college. I grew up with Al Adels as the coach, Joe Barry Carroll as the center, Sleepy Floyd. I mean, they had some nice players, but they never went anywhere. 
And so, you know, my, I lived and died with those teams, but I mostly died with them. It wasn't like I was rooting for the Washington Generals, but some nights it felt like it. And so for Blazer fans out there that are struggling kind of with the trajectory of the franchise, I totally understand where you're coming from. I completely get that you are, um, you are in a position where, you know, you are uh, watching your team sort of uh, bumble along in this era. And let's face it, you know, we all kind of understand life is short. People say that, but I think we understand it. If you're a sports fan, I think you have context for it because you watch seasons come and go. And for people who are, like, born in 1978 or so, you know, you've lived a lifetime without your NBA team winning a championship. You've got some thrills. You appeared in, you know, the finals. You got to the Western Conference finals other times, but you never uh, you never got back to the top of the mountain. And I think some of that is very sobering. Some of that is, um, uh, you know, you look around at some of the franchises that have won multiple championships. Like you look at the Warriors fans today and you go, okay, I don't feel bad for you at all. Like Blazer fans have really suffered with their team. And so I do not blame you for being, um, I guess, disenchanted over what you are seeing. But I do think, like, you have to look at franchises that have truly rebuilt and truly uh, found success in the wake of a rebuild. And the Warriors are a great example of that. Like, they changed ownership. The Franklin Muley-owned Warriors ended up, uh, you know, changing hands in, in multiple times and currently end up in the hands of an ownership group that is led by somebody who knows how to win and knows you know who to hire and you know and because of that i think they drafted well and they made smart decisions and i think the fan base over time not only learns to trust a franchise they learn to believe in a franchise do blazer fans believe in the blazers i don't i think it's a rhetorical question i don't think they do steven do you believe in the blazers uh no i don't <laughs> maybe you know it's just the history of the blazers and Every time there has been hope, something bad, really bad, yeah. has gone bad for that. You know, Greg yeah. Oden, Brandon Roy, uh, even, you know, before me, Bill Walton, they've got one, and then finally he gets hurt, uh, you know, running to Michael Jordan. You know, that's that's bad luck. I don't – I just – I feel like something always bad is going to happen, but I do want to have that lone faith in the back of my head that one day I'll be able to go uh, on Broadway and celebrate the parade with my kids. So, like, that's the one thing that keeps me going that I think the Blazers could do it one day. Uh, but ultimately, I do think, you know, this, it's going to be a long road ahead of the Portland Trailblazers. Yeah, and, and look, I'm not saying, like, you know, you we we would be shocked if the Blazers truly competed next season, season beyond. Like, you would be shocked to see that, you know, if you're a Blazer fan, to see your franchise truly get to a position where it was competing for a championship, right? Because, you know, as you said, hey, so far away at this point, or at least you feel like you're that far away. But I think what you would really hope for, if you are a Blazer fan, is that you would hope that your franchise could take the kind of steps forward that would make you believe that they were building in the right direction. And so I kind of saw Thursday as a small step in the right direction. If for no other reason, the franchise did not succumb to the wishes of the star player and go, hey, all right, we're going to, mortgage our future for your a little bit of present right now make you a little bit happy because i actually don't think that there was anything the blazers could have done that would have uniquely positioned them to take a step forward 
the kind of step forward that Lillard would have needed to view this as a long-term place to be. Like, those moves needed to be made three and four years ago. And when the Blazers, you know, uh, you know, hire Joe Cronin or promote Joe Cronin and then immediately trade C.J. McCollum and at the deadline in February and sort of, you know, signal that they were rebuilding, I was like, look, they, they got pennies on the dollar for C.J. McCollum. Like, at what point, did Damian Lillard raise a fuss then? No. But now he's upset that they're not, you know, doing what he wanted them to do on draft day. I just think it's kind of silly in the end. And I agree with you. And I think, the you know, for me, looking forward, it, you know, it seems inevitable that at some point Damian Lillard will be traded from the Trailblazers. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be today or if it's going to be at the end of the season or in two or three seasons. It, nobody knows. But what I will say is this, John, like you talk about the CJ McCollum trade and, you know, Robert Covington, Norman Powell, all these guys, there's been so much, you know, there was so much uh, negativity to those trades because fans felt like they didn't get a lot back in return. The trade market is a little down right now. Uh, you know, John Collins today, he's a solid young player. He got traded for just parts, like the second round pick and, you know, cap space. I'm not sure what's out there for Dame right now. And I think this could just be terrible timing if Dame does actually indeed request to be traded out. I think the Trailblazers need to hold on to him and hope that some team comes out of nowhere and offers up a better package that can actually help the Trailblazers. Cause you're right. Like the Blazers, they're not going to compete this year, no matter what they do. There's, there's no chance that's going to happen, but if you're going to try to be viable with the next couple seasons, you got to get some type of young player or some draft picks going forward to team up with scoot and Shaden sharp and hope that those two pop. Cause that, that that's your opportunity. I, you know, I, I said this after the draft, you know, in a weird way, even though the Blazers didn't trade for that vet, I think they're closer to a championship today than they were the day before because they have Scoot Henderson and they have that hope. Maybe Scoot and Shaden pop at the same time. Then you have two legitimate stars on the same team. So I think the Blazers need to be careful with the whole Damian Lillard trade situation if he indeed does come out and say that he wants to be traded. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I want you to tell me what you are feeling as the Blazers position themselves for whatever era comes next. I don't know if it's going to be the Scoot Henderson era. I don't know how how good a player he's going to be, but I do know that I think the Blazers did the right thing on Thursday. Look, I've been critical of the franchise. I think that it's been a dumpster fire, and I think it's been a dumpster fire even in the Paul Allen ownership era. Lots of squirrely things that the Blazers did. Lots of mistakes, the changing over the GMs. He went through six GMs in ten years. Changed them like he changed his socks. Ended up on Neil Olshay, and for whatever reason, he handed that guy the keys and gave that guy the autonomy. And, oh, when Paul Allen passed away, may he rest in peace, he left that guy in charge for some reason. And that guy ran the Blazers into the side of the mountain. And I think they are where they are today not because of what they did on Thursday, but because of what they have done over a series of years. Do you, look, I, yeah, I was going to say, do you think there's any chance that the Blazers could look still to try to trade for a veteran player and trade Scoot Henderson away? Because that is still possible. They can still trade him. It, it, it's not inconceivable. Andrew Wiggins, that happens with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He was traded by the Cavs to the T-Wolves for Kevin Love. Yeah, but do you think I, there's any chance? I don't see it. I don't see it. I think if that if that deal was out there, I think it would have been made right around the draft. And I think, I think part of the issue is... Um, I think part of the issue is that, you know, we got some people. Look, you know what you, that, that thought, that rationale sounds like to me, Steven? It's like chasing bets, you know? Well, yeah, maybe you can win. Maybe. <laughs> 
Jim, well, maybe, I know they're down 14, but now, you know, maybe they can get a touchdown and an onside kick. Hey, I've stayed up late and watched the Hawaii football game that starts at 10 p.m. You know, it's it, it happens. You know, you got to chase it. You're a bad day. Hey, Hawaii takes on who, Fresno State. I, I got to bet on this game. Yeah, but don't you feel like, like, to me, like, I said it last week, and I said it in the run-up to the draft, that there was going to be all this discussion about possible trade moves and all this discussion about all the smoke and, you know, we're going to do this. And then in the end, you know, I felt like they were going to pick at three. And I thought if they traded, it would be 23 or 43 that they traded, if, if, if they traded. And in the end, they kind of did what I thought they were going to do. They didn't surprise me. And I also think that if there was a team out there willing to give up something of value for either Damian Lillard or Anthony Simons or Yusuf Nurkic or the third pick, I think the Blazers, if somebody had presented them with a no-brainer deal, I think the Blazers would have done it. But what about pick 23? You, we talked about this. I I was still a little shocked they didn't trade that for a veteran. I know they drafted Chris Murray, who's going to be 23 when the season starts. He's going to be a very old rookie. But it seemed like those are the type of picks where you can trade for role players. And if you're really trying to appease Dame, that's the pick to trade. The second-round pick, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to trade that. You can't get yeah, I think you hit it. on it. But if the, you're trying to appease Dame, and, I think the yeah. message was... I think the message was clear. I think that the franchise is saying, hey, you're under contract. You know, we're not going to do what you, you want us to do. And also, let's go back. Like, people are looking at this draft like it's Joe Cronin's draft. I kind of think it was Burt Cold's draft, but Joe Cronin's making the picks. Like, maybe someday when Joe Cronin writes his book, we'll know. Like, did he actually make the picks on draft day, or was he told who to pick? Or did he give input and then was told who to pick? Because I kind of feel like there is a there's a backstory here going on with the Blazers that is really interesting. You know, it's a game of succession being played behind the scenes. We saw the news today as the G League team got introduced, and you know, the Blazers came out and said, you know, it was really cool. They have uh, they have a G League team, the you know, Rip City Remix. That's going to be the name of the the team, the G League team. And and the Blazers came out and said, you know, Jody Allen came up with the name. Rip City Remix, which to me is like the lamest way ever from a PR perspective to try to claim that she's interested in the in what is going on with the basketball operations. We all know Jody doesn't care. Jody's not engaged. Jody's not, you know, she's not a diehard Blazer fan. She loves the the Seahawks. She's a Seattle person. I think she's always viewed the Blazers as her brother's basketball hobby, you know. And you know, you have that going on with her. You have, you know, and she's got to be insufferable to deal with behind the scenes. And then you got Burt Cold, who's got this huge ego, but knows no basketball. And I think the perception from the rest of us is going to be, I, I really do think that part of the reason why the Blazers wouldn't make a deal on draft day is I don't think Burt Cold wants to get pantsed on national TV like Steve Patterson and John Nash did when they traded Rasheed Wallace. Like, I, I really do think that he's going to try to look like he's smarter than anybody else. When he does make a deal. And so I kind of use that like a, you know, it's, that's like a comfort thing. Like, you know, on one hand, he's got an ego and he's probably a pill to deal with. On the other hand, he's got an ego. He's not going to want to look stupid, probably to a fault. And we've all dealt with people who in negotiations are very unreasonable and maybe a little insecure, afraid to look dumb. They will not make a bad deal. And they're hard to deal with because it's hard to get a deal at all with somebody who has that mindset. But I actually think, Blazer fans, that's Burt Cold. Like, he's not going to make a deal that is going to make him look bad because I don't think he wants that on his resume. So 
I, you know, I've heard from people, and I know about negotiations that he has done on the business side of the operation, and people literally will pull their hair out dealing with him because he doesn't make a bad deal because he wants to show everybody how smart he is. So Blazer fans, I guess you could take comfort in that. You know, he's not going to help the franchise get to a championship, but he's not going to make a horrible deal because he knows we're all watching him, and he doesn't want to look stupid. Our big splash is coming up. Well, it's summertime. You know it because, what, your kids are in camps? Your kids go into camps, uh, Stephen? Uh, you got some summer camps planned for your kids? Oh, uh, yeah, we do. We got a couple summer camps, got a couple uh, summer outings. So, yeah, we're uh, getting it all lined up. Now that uh, Coach Vaughn is back from her little uh, outing that she had, uh, we getting the kids ready now. She had an outing? She did, yeah. She uh, she got invited to Washington, D.C., actually. It was for a wow. uh, like a leadership and coaching convention, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. it was awesome. She got to meet a bunch of people, um, met the co-owner of the Washington Nationals, uh, met some people talking about some NIL stuff. You actually would enjoy the conversations that I've had with her about all this kind of stuff. Like It was very intriguing. Um, a lady who I want to say was in charge of the IMG Academy down in Florida, okay. uh, a bunch of different stuff about how just, you know, the, the – the landscape of coaching and sports are changing in the world. So she uh, got an invite from Coach Pine over at Central Catholic, who's the head football coach. He was one of the keynote speakers there. He he actually invited her because you know she's uh, such a prestigious coach. Actually, you know I, I like to make fun of it and say you know Coach Vaughn, but she's actually a really good coach. So uh, she got the invite. Just got back early this morning. Does she flex that coaching like directly with you? Like, hey, I know what's best, or no. how is she to work with? She doesn't. Like, she she's does. not listening. Come on, like you could tell us. No, she's probably sleeping. Uh, no, she doesn't. Like, I will. I flex her up. I always be like, oh, you're the best best track coach in the state. What are you talking Good about? And she's yeah. like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, yeah, you are. So I told her she has to win a state title though before we bring her on the show as like a you know coach yeah. as a guest. Yeah. No, we could bring her on. Have her nah. talk about you. What's it like to to live with the Vaughn? Like, you know, I'd like to know that. Um, hey, listen, uh, that that reminds me that something Ann and I were talking about uh, over the weekend, and it's interesting to kind of watch. I think how spouses or people in relationships talk about their significant other, and I find it um, really uh, encouraging that when you talk about Coach Vaughn, you. You are always effusive in your praise of her. Like, you publicly laud her. That is a very good marker of a successful relationship. Did you know that? I did not, uh, but, I mean, there's no doubt that she's a great coach. I mean, when I was playing, she would always, you know, coach me on my jump shot. Be like, you need to, why are you doing this? And then it would fix it right away. Like, I, you know, I've always listened to her when it comes to coaching, sports, or life. So, uh, she's awesome. Yeah, no, she's but- great. But I think, you know, you've, we've all been around friends who will, like, trash their significant other. And, and they do it in a very, you know, kind of underhanded, de- you know, kind of a, this deprecation that is underhanded, kind of undermines. It's like it's like jabbing at him all the time. You, ever, you know, you, we all yeah. have friends that do that. And I don't think, like, I always cringe when I hear it. And, and I, I probably should tell my friends when they do that, like, hey, man, like, you know, you should be lifting, like, you should be talking, you know, Talk about the things that you love about your significant other. Like, don't always feel like you need to jab at them. Yeah, it's it's just not funny. Like, I'm with you. It's I, I have this theory, John, that a lot of people are actually they really are miserable married to their significant other. Like, they'd be so much more happier if they weren't. And like, it's so like when you're so like I feel actually really blessed that like me and my wife are best friends and get along because yeah. I feel like it's very rare and I take it for granted. But like, I feel like that's actually true. 
I love it. You, I have this theory, and I was bracing for like this Neil deGrasse, you know, like you know, tell me about no, the universe. People are miserable. That's, that's and it. you're just like people are just miserable in their relationships. <laughs> and but I, you know, but I, I do. I have a couple of friends who will constantly, sort of publicly, it, and even right in front of their significant others, they will kind of put them down a little bit in a joking way, and I don't think it's very becoming. I just think it's kind of like you know, hey man. Like if you like really, that's you know, this is the person you picked, right? Like in your jabbing at them, and it is your choice. Like you them. don't you don't have to be with them. Like that is that is very true. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, all right, it brings us to our big splash. It's got a University of Oregon flavor to it. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where down there? I don't know if you were aware or I was aware when Devin Allen was playing football at the University of Oregon, but he's become quite the two-sport star, or at least an interesting character in two different sports. Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Devin Allen, formerly of the Ducks, ran his fastest time ever in the 110-meter hurdles on Saturday at the United States uh, Track and Field NYC Grand Prix event. He ran 13.04 seconds. That's the fourth fastest time in the world this year. Finished second in the event behind Daniel Roberts, who ran 13.01. Devin Allen has improved his time in each of the 510-meter hurdle events that he's competed in this year. He is peaking, is what I'm saying. He's 28. He spent last season on the practice squad with the Eagles, signed with the team in April. Before that, he last played at Oregon. Remember him in 2016? He put his football career on hold. He pursued track and field. He has been fifth and fourth in the last two Olympics in the 110 meters. Now, NBC Sports interviewed him and asked him, you know, how are you managing juggling football and track and field? He said, quote, it's going well. Balancing both is difficult, but I'm having a lot of fun. As long as I can stay healthy, it's good to compete against these guys in high-quality competition. By the way, 13.01 and 13.04 is nothing to scoff at. He uh, also ran in track events last year after signing with the Eagles. Uh, he will next compete in the outdoor championships scheduled for July 6th through the 9th in Eugene, Oregon. If he's to qualify for the world championships, they'll be in Budapest, Hungary in August. So he'll have a decision to make if he qualifies. He'll have to decide between going to the world championships or going to training camp with the Eagles. Steven, you're Devin Allen's chief advisor. Does he go to the world championships or does he go to training camp? Mm, uh, I go to the world championships. That's what I would advise Devin Allen to do. I, I know that he probably loves football and he probably loves football more than track, uh, but to get to the world championships, I think that's – that's more important than the training camp. I, I think that's something that you can really put your name to and uh, really etch your name and legacy uh, if you do well at that event. So I would advise World Championships, but and I don't really think it's actually that close. Like I, I think, you know, he, he tried the football thing and just didn't work out, and uh, he's proven to be one of the best athletes in the world today. But I mean, just you know, I, I, you do something that you're elite at rather than something that you're just you know okay at. You're trying to make it into. He's, he's always struck me as a track and field guy. He's a hurdler who plays football. He's not a football, football player who hurdles. He is a hurdler who's, you know, it's, it's Ronaldo Nehemiah, right? Like, he, 
is first and foremost a track and field person. And by the way, he's better at it. Making the practice squad with the Eagles is cool, but being fourth or fifth at the Olympics means you are fourth or fifth in the world at your event. So I think if he goes to the world championships in Hungary, he got, you know, you blow off training camp, you might not make a 53-man roster because you're not in training camp, but I got to think the Eagles are going to understand that and take that into consideration. And, you know, when you get back, if there's a place for you in the practice squad, maybe you end up on the 53-man roster at some point of the season. But uh, here's the other thing that's interesting with this. Like, he doesn't have to make that decision because – all he has to do is go to Eugene on July 6th through the 9th at the U.S. Outdoor Championships and run his butt off and try to, you know, do what he, you know, di- has not done in get- getting to the World Championships. So if he gets to the World Championships, I think he got to go. I-, I don't think it's that much of a decision. The Eagles will have to understand, and I think the Eagles will live with it. Like, you know, we're going to lose a guy off the practice squad. Is this the end of the world? No. Let's shine up the uh, – NFC Championship trophy and uh, look at our reflection in, the, in it and see if it bothers us that much. Well, no, the Eagles are going to move on. And talking about good PR, I mean, what what would look better if the Eagles like, yeah, go go do your thing and come back. We'll be ready for you. You know, like, you know, we understand. Like, this is this is what's happening. No hard feelings on this. I think it's all it's all good in the Eagles situation if they just let him go and they just yeah. let him do his thing. And here's, and here's the thing. Like, he's right there. He is right there. If you have the fourth best time in the world, you're in this. So, you know, all he has to do is literally take another half a step forward. Uh, Ask the track coach about that when you go home tonight, Vaughn. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Pac-12 Conference and the Oregon Ducks in in particular. Spencer McLaughlin will be joining us. Uh, He's a reporter who covers the Pac-12, covers the Oregon Ducks. He's next. Our next guest hosts a daily podcast fashions himself an Oregon Ducks fan. He's coming at you from uh, Central Oregon today. TV play-by-play voice for the Southern Utah Athletics Thunderbirds. Host of Locked On Ducks. Locked On Pac-12. I've been on his show. Spencer McLaughlin joining us to talk about all things uh, Pac-12, all things Oregon Ducks. Uh, first of all, I want to know what you're doing in Central Oregon. What are you doing? What is going on? Um, well, the first three days that I got here, I played golf every one of them, and my body physically needed a rest today. But we'll be back on the golf course <laughs> probably as soon as tomorrow. Is this a trip? Like, give us your history. Like, where did you grow up? What, you know, because I, I know you host the podcast. I know you focus on the Pac-12. I know you focus on the... Oregon Ducks, uh, among other things, uh, in the Pac-12. But give us an idea of why you're in Central Oregon at all. Like, you know, is this something you do? Well, th- this is just uh, another place where I can do my, my podcast from. Uh, my parents are uh, in the process of completing a house down here at, uh, at, at Black Butte. And the nice. office I've uh, insured is, is all, all set up for me to be able to work here all summer because when – uh, you know, college sports end for, for Southern Utah, which was back uh, last weekend in April, first weekend in May, sometime around there. You know, the shows can kind of go wherever I go, and Central Oregon is a pretty pretty awesome place to be. And, of course, it works out weather-wise because in Utah it's great, you know, most, most of the year, but then it starts to get kind of hot right now. Come back up to Oregon, which I will always call home for my entire life, and, you know, get to see old old friends and family and just 
being out here. It's 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 an absolute absolute blast. And I, I honestly, for as, as avid of a golfer as I am, I have not sufficiently explored Central Oregon golf enough. I've added two new courses to my uh my my list of places i've played over the weekend but i got like 10 more to get through this summer i uh i envy you where you are and i appreciate you giving <laughs> us your time um yeah, give, me an, give me an idea you know you, you grow up an oregon fan and then now hosting a podcast uh on the locked on network about the ducks about the pac-12 that 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 has to feel pretty good to you uh it's the, the coolest thing i've ever done is just to decide to go down this path for for my career and you know getting to like i i love the the pac-12 pod don't don't get me wrong like my boss asked me one time uh he wasn't giving me an ultimatum it's just like a fun hypothetical of you know would you rather do the pac-12 show or or the oregon show and i told him you know i'm really glad i don't have to choose because i love i love doing both of them i i think there's there, there are a lot more angles to take with the Pac-12 show, as you know, you know, especially now with realignment and everything that kind of, you know, tests my my capabilities as as a sports talk host and you know, crafting segments and opinions, you know, is a little bit more, uh, I think, in, intensive of, of of sorts on on the Pac-12 show. But the the Ducks one is you know more more special to me personally because I've just been an Oregon fan my my entire life, and to get to talk with duck fans, you know, through the pod and the mailbag and everything, every single day is just beyond an absolute treat for me. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that that, that passion and love for the ducks is, uh, reflected every day in, in the show and, you know, the support that I've gotten and where my shows are at. I just, I, I feel grateful for it every single day. And it's just the greatest thing I've ever done. Let's talk first about the ducks. Uh, big questions right. in your mind. You know, Dan Lanning's first year, he wins 10 games. You know, some people weren't happy, but I thought it was a pretty solid first year. I think there's some questions that he needs to answer. But in your mind, Spencer, what you know, when you look at this Oregon season one, transition to season two for Dan Lanning, where's your mind? Yeah, I think solid is the word to use. And, and I think one of the encouraging things for Duck fans right now is is kind of twofold. Number one, uh, we didn't feel like we had a, a great season. We had a good, not great season. And the recruiting is at as high a level as we've ever seen it with, with the Ducks. And they're, I, I think, going to be pushing for the best class in, in program history for the 2024 cycle. And, you know, there's still a long way to go, but they are in the running for some big-time names. They've already got the number eight class in the country with high school recruits. So I think that's the, the encouraging thing. Uh, number one and, and then number two is you know how close we really were to having that that season in 2022 be not solid but great outstanding amazing incredible because you know it was a nine and three regular season and they're two plays away from from going 11 and one now they're also if you looked at it maybe a couple plays away you know fourth down against uh Washington State, for instance, that they converted when they were down two scores. They're they're maybe a play or two away from going uh, eight and four last season. So you know, college football it just operates on on the margins in such such a big way. But the margins are are often so small. And I, I think there were a lot of encouraging things for the Ducks underlanding year one. I think there's still you know a, a decent amount of room to grow. But you know, it's hard to not be encouraged by what he's doing on, on the recruiting trail and the all-in effort that, that he's making there. And we know how important that is for Oregon to get back to the playoff or God willing, win a national championship one day. But I, I think from, you know, a, a schematic standpoint and just, 
you know, being a CEO, establishing a culture, bringing in and developing talent, I think there are a lot of encouraging signs on, on that front as well. And, you know, I, I think it's, it was a solid season because it was a good year uh, previously as well under Mario Cristobal in 2021, beat Ohio State, and then, you know, have those blowout losses against uh, Utah that kind of took the shine off of that win a little bit in the eyes of some Duck fans, I know. But I, I look at a place like Oklahoma with Brent Vettables and say, hey, just because you're a storied program that wins a lot does not mean that, you know, your young defensive-minded coach, Venables is a lot older than, than Lanning, but still your, you know, new defensive-minded coach that brings a lot of excitement to the program doesn't mean he's automatically going to work. So I, I think it's uh, somewhat of a prove-it year for Lanning in, in the second season with regards to, you know, how how he's viewed in, in Pac-12 coaching circles and being, you know, truly an elite coach up there. But if he goes out and, you know, has another 10-win season, factoring the bowl game or not, it's hard to not look at it and go, boy, he could, he could really be building some, something special here. Spencer McLaughlin with us, Locked On Ducks, Locked On Pac-12. That's the podcast you need to check out. Uh, Spencer, how you mentioned national championship, you know, God willing. How far away does Oregon feel maybe in the four-team playoff era, maybe looking forward to a 12-team era? How far away do they feel from being in a playoff in your mind, and then maybe contending in a playoff? Well, I want, I want to start with the four versus the 12-team playoff, John. I don't think the calculus changes for winning a national championship. You, you still have to recruit at a high level. You still have to have, you know, good or above-average quarterback play. I mean, there's more than one way to, you know, execute winning or getting to a national championship. Like the Ducks in uh, 2010, I think, were driven by philosophy when they got there. And in 2014, yeah, the philosophy was a part of it, but having the best player in the history of the program also uh, probably aided them in, in that pursuit. And Mariota winning the Heisman Trophy and such. But I, I don't think that a 12-team playoff gives you, you know, a greater chance to win a national championship because if at the end of the year you're ranked, you know, ninth in the country and you've had a couple of losses and you scrape by a couple wins, it's like then you were never going to be a national championship caliber team. I think Oregon even, you know, learned that in, in a harsh way with those two losses to Washington and Oregon State a season ago. But just because you can get close to it throughout the course of the season doesn't mean you actually have everything that you need. The Ducks have to have defensive growth on that side of the ball. But, it, you know, I, I think for, for Lanning, you know, it's bringing in the sorts of players that he wants that can uh, allow his defense to thrive. And it's also, you know, something else that is a continued test for head coaches in college football consistently, which is can you hire good coordinators after your really good one goes to take a head coaching position elsewhere? Because the best programs in the country are going to have, I mean, Kirby Smart has won back-to-back national championships. Guess what happened? He lost his offensive coordinator. He's got to go out and make the, make the right hire. And I forgot who they brought in, but that's part of being a head coach. And, you know, Nick Saban has had, success doing that for a long time. He's had Steve Sarkeesian and uh, Bill O'Brien and uh, Lane Kiffin all come through and they've all had success and the constant has, has been Kiffin. So I think that's, you know, part of the test here for, for landing and any coach that's trying to uh, get to that level of college football playoff or national championship is, do you know how to not be reliant upon, you know, your coordinators or coaches the way like Annette Orgeron was at LSU, like that worked for one year, but, there was no sustainability uh, to, to what he was doing there because he lost his coordinators and then everything, you know, kind of went to hell <laughs> like pretty, pretty quickly down there for him. So 
I think he's uh, he being landing has got that that challenge in front of him. I like the Will Stein hire. Uh, I I do. It very much fits. It's kind of in the Kenny Dillingham mold, just without the Power Five experience, but he's got more play calling experience. So I, I think those are kind of the biggest tests: is can he recruit and build a defense that is significantly improved from what the Ducks have been defensively the last couple of seasons, and then can you continue to to bring in offensive coordinators who can allow your offense to put up you know over 500 yards a game like they did this past season? Yeah, and I and I think the thing that surprised me: were you surprised that the defense? with Dan Lanning, known as a defensive guy, didn't seem to have teeth or didn't seem to have an identity? Or could that be explained, Spencer, by maybe, hey, it's a first-year coach and these aren't his guys? I think you can choose to explain it that way. I, I was let down a little bit by, you know, the defensive growth I thought we could see. Um, there was actually some. It, it's it's really hard for Oregon fans to to realize something like that. But if you look at the numbers from – 2021 to 2022 there was improvement on that side of the ball not as much as we perhaps would have liked to have seen as duck fans but you know the biggest thing that was missing was a pass rush it was their lowest pass rush and sack rate since like 2001 like it, it was historically bad in that sense and that's one of the reasons they couldn't get off the field on on third down like you look at the washington game if you give michael Penix, who you know is definitely playing himself into the first or second round of the nfl draft next year if you give him time to sit back there, drink a cup of coffee, pat the ball three times, and fire, he's going to pick you apart because he's got really good wide receivers. And Oregon's inability to create pressure last year, I think, is what really did in the defense most of all. Uh, you know, they need better production out of their linebackers. A couple more big plays from safeties would be good. But really, you know, corners are going to thrive when they have a pass rush that doesn't require them to cover, you know, really good receivers for five and six seconds because that's just asking – that's just asking far too much. So I, I think that they've revamped on the defensive line. They're continuing to build at that position. That was a priority in the 2023 recruiting class and looks like it will be at some level again for 2024 and beyond. And I think that's the right approach because if you look at what Lanning knows, it's, you know, being the defense coordinator at Georgia. What do you think of when you think of those Georgia defenses? they got a bunch of big guys up front. They had the number one pick in the NFL draft. They had Jalen Carter. They had Kobe Dean in the front seven. Just a, a bunch of big-time dudes in, in the front seven, particularly along the defensive line. I think that's what was missing for the Ducks uh, a season ago. But, you know, getting Pope Almavai back, bringing in Jordan Birch, adding Mateo Uyunglele, a five-star true freshman, I think those are substantial steps forward in the right direction for the Ducks uh, really making defensive strides this year. We're talking to Spencer McLaughlin, Locked On Ducks podcast, Locked On the Pac-12. Let's pivot to the Pac-12. First, uh, the Colorado question. Okay, how much have you talked about Colorado on the podcast, and what what do you see for Coach Prime in season one? Well, I I talk about him a a decent amount, though admittedly not as much because I think we're just kind of in – you know, when, when he first got to Colorado, it was big, big news, and Colorado's relevant, Colorado's interesting, Colorado's changing the game, Colorado is polarizing, and Dion is polarizing, and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's been long enough now to where, you know, at least for, for me, it's certainly an interesting topic I, that I think pops up a little bit more in earnest once the season starts, because we're all just so interested to see, well, what is this going to be? You know, like, what what can they actually do in year one? And you'll find Colorado fans, uh, at least that I've interacted with through through my, my Pac-12 show, who, you know, are realistic that, 
it's, it's still not going to be a great season. There's a long way to go, and you can find Colorado fans as well. And Kevin Borba of our Locked on Buffs show can uh, speak to this as well. But, you know, there are fans out there who think Dion is the greatest thing since sliced bread for college football and for Colorado, and he's going to win eight games in year one. And, look, you believe whatever you'd like. I'm, I'm most curious to see what it looks like. But their preseason win total is tied for the lowest in the Pac-12 with Stanford. And I'm sure you know, John, Stanford doesn't have a lot of great vibes, though they got Elijah Brown committed in 2024, which is huge, huge, high, highly rated four-star quarterback there. But that's that's not a team that you want to be associated with right now with regards to having success in 2023. So I, I think, you know, on the realignment front, Colorado to the Big 12 is a, a disaster plan for them, you know, as in they have it in their back pocket if – it gets to that point, but I don't think I know that that's not where they want to go. I don't think that's where they end up going, and I think this will all kind of quiet down once the media deal gets uh, gets finalized, which hopefully is soon. But also once football actually starts and we can you know watch watch the games that that we actually love, because at the end of the day, that's what this all comes back to, right? We're interested in realignment because of how it affects football. We're interested in the portal because of how it affects you know your on-field results, but. You know, I, I think three wins would be a good year for the Buffs. If they got four, it'd be outstanding. Five would be amazing. If they got bowl eligible, an SEC team might swoop in and hire Dion out from under Colorado. I was listening to one of your podcasts, and you are bullish on the Cal Bears. Why? <laughs> what do you see that no one else sees? Well, yeah, I mean, bullish is, is a relative term. I'm bullish on them going over <laughs> four and a half wins this year. That's, okay. that's my bullish take on, on Cal. I'm not listing them as a conference contender in here. But here, here's my thinking, John. Justin Wilcox is going into year seven. And one of those is the COVID year, so sixth full year, whatever you want to call it, yada, yada, yada. So he's going into year seven. I know Cal doesn't have incredibly high standards in terms of, you know, athletic performance. It took him too long to fire Mark Fox uh, running the men's basketball program. But they made a good hire there in Mark Madsen, who's coming from a conference that I cover at Southern Utah in the WAC. Utah Valley, he had a lot of success there. That was a really good hire. And they're seeing the early results of it there. So I just wonder if there isn't kind of a shift in mindset up there or rather down there in, uh, in Berkeley with regards to, you know, what their standards are. And I see a guy going into year seven who hasn't won more than eight games in a season, who hasn't developed or delivered – a winning record in conference play yet. And I think that he's coaching and making the sorts of moves that, that kind of reflect the urgency of the situation here. So I think that's, that's a component. Number one, number two, would it surprise anyone listening to the show right now to know that the California golden bears have a top 20 rated transfer portal class in the 2023 cycle. This is not Stanford. They are a great academic school, but they're not as restrictive as Stanford. So they've been able to bring in some players to help their cause. That's, that's the second thing. Third thing is they've revamped their offensive philosophy. And as, as you know as well, and other people who are Pac-12 fans have seen, you know, Cal teams over the years, they've never been terrible. I mean, they were, you know, what you'd call a quote, quote unquote, good four and eight last year. They lost a lot of really, really close games, usually because their offense couldn't keep up. Their defense actually took a step back a season ago. But the offense has always been the Achilles heel under Justin Wilcox. And he got rid of his offensive coordinator, Bill Musgrave, got rid of their offensive line coach. That was a weakness a year ago as well. They bring in a couple new coaches at those positions. And then Sam Jackson is the guy 
that gives me some hope for the Bears offensively. Because I trust Wilcox to build a defense. We've seen him do it time and time again at Cal. I think they bounce back. They get Brett Johnson back this year on the defensive line, who's their best player the last couple of years who've been out with injuries. And Sam Jackson is a four-star quarterback recruit, went to TCU, wasn't seeing the field, comes over to Cal. He's got a big arm. He is crazy fast and dynamic, and they just haven't had a guy like that. So new offensive philosophy, new players, and urgency is kind of the succinct way of why I say I could see Cal being a bowl-eligible team this year. That and that's all right. That's bullish then. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> as bullish as it can yeah. be. Look and and look, I think he's a good coach and they took a step backward and I know there's a lot of questions at Cal with transfer portal, NIL, academic requirements. Um if 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 Justin Wilcox can get to a bowl game, it's gonna be a major victory for that football program. We're talking to Spencer Absolutely. McLaughlin, locked on Pac twelve podcast. Uh, let's talk a little Oregon State, all right? So you, you've seen them. You saw them beat Oregon in that Civil War rivalry game. Uh, Jonathan Smith uh, is always acting like he knows something the rest of us don't. Uh, that coaching staff <laughs> stayed together. Still a question at quarterback. How big a question is that for you, Spencer? It's, it's a question, and I think the question is, how does the potential increased production or at least capability at the quarterback position counteract a potential defensive regression. Now, when you had the best or second-best defense in the Pac-12 a season ago, regressing on that side because of lost personnel through the Beavs is, you know, relative, right? Like, if, if, if Stanford were to somehow take a step back defensive, I don't know how they could do that after last year, but let's say they <laughs> did that. Like, that. like, that would be indicative of being really bad. If Oregon State is a 20% worse defense than a year ago, that's still top half in the Pac-12. So if that happens, and look, they lost Jane Grant, they lost, lost Alex Austin, they were out, out of eligibility, two key members of that really, really good secondary. They do still have Trent Bray, Trent Bray the defensive coordinator, but then they lose Omar Spates, the linebacker, to LSU, which stinks, and I, I'm sure it's frustrating to Oregon State fans, and it's hard, hard to blame them for, for feeling that way. But I think if the defense is, Good, but not great like it was last year. But you can get DJ Uyunglele to be a good version of himself. Not necessarily the best version of himself, but the but a good version of himself. Then I think your offense can at the very least be more versatile and more multiple than it was a year ago. Because, you know, you had Gobranson out there, and he was obviously serviceable as a backup quarterback. But DJ can make throws that Goldbranson just cannot. And, you know, I, I think back to Oregon State early in the last season when Chance Nolan was the starter before he got hurt. They were taking shots down the field. Like, they, they were pushing it against the secondary, stretching the field, keeping the defense honest, and utilizing that play-action game to take shots, you know, that are beyond the, the, the line of scrimmage or the first down marker. DJ presents that threat once again that I think they lost really, you know, consistently when they when they went to, to Ben Goldbranson, when they had to go, rather, to Ben Goldbranson as as their starting quarterback. So I, I feel like Oregon State is poised to have a good season. They've got a really favorable schedule. I, I don't know if you've looked at it in depth, John, but they get key games at home. You know, the San Jose State on the road, San Diego State at home for their non-conference. That's a key split. Because San Diego State on the road, that'd be a little bit tougher but at Reeser, I, I, don't, I don't see the Aztecs going in there and winning that game. It's one of the toughest places to win in the last couple of years. So I think when you look at how the schedule shakes out for them, it can work. And 
I, I don't think, you know, at his best at Clemson, DJU was going for 330 yards a game and three touchdowns. At his worst, he was going for 170 yards, two picks, and he was on the bench. If you can just consistently hit somewhere in the middle there, 240 to 260 yards a game, two touchdowns, maybe a pick every now and then because you're taking shots down the field, I think that can take the Oregon State offense to another level because that offensive line is really, really good. All right, so, uh, you know, I think the Pac-12 is going to get a deal. I think they're going to be uh, a little above the Big 12's number of $31.6 million per school. Uh, if the people I'm talking to are, are dealing me straight, that's where they're going to end up. But uh, I also think we're not going to see a deal this week. I think the San Diego State SMU question will linger. I think it's going to spill over into early July. Uh, I would say the first 12 days of July are what I'm looking at. What do you think the narrative becomes, Spencer, in the next two weeks as the deal progresses towards completion? Well, I don't think the narrative changes until the media deal actually comes to fruition and becomes public information. Now, presidents and chancellors, as, as you've discussed, are likely seeing you know hard numbers and who the media partners are and whatnot. But somehow, some way, and it's honestly amazing that this has been the case. There have been basically no leaks on any of this. Like nothing substantive has ever leaked out from the Pac-12, it seems. They've kept it very close to the chest, which makes me think, you know, why? And the, and the two reasons that I can come up with as to why they would, you know, be so dead set on, hey, no leaks, don't indicate anything, let other people, you know, Pac-12 affiliated or not, control the narrative about our conference, we don't care. Either the deal is not going to be as good as they have indicated, or they have something up their sleeve that none of us are expecting, and they are fine with letting us talk ourselves into a circle of insanity and thinking the Pac-12 is dead only for them to pull a rabbit straight out of the hat, present it to the crowd, and get a bunch of oohs and ahs. Those are the only, I think, foreseeable conclusions as to why it's been so tight-lipped and why they just – I mean, George Klyovkov hasn't spoken, I think, since he was on with you and John Wilner in February. So, I mean – there, there just aren't any other conference commissioners that are just not going on the record about anything at all whatsoever for four months at a time, four and a half, five months at a time. So th those are the two thoughts that, that come into my head. But I, I think that we've, you know, it's gone on for so long, and I've talked about it a lot on, on my show and other shows have as well. I, I think that, you know, the narrative on the Pac-12 is pretty set, and that's the the chips are all into the center of the table on the media deal being good enough. Because if the deal is good enough to keep the conference together, if you do beat the Big 12 in, you know, financial uh, value there for the conference, then you look like the smartest people on planet. You look like someone who invested in Apple when it was still in Steve Jobs' garage. But <laughs> if, you, if you're on the other side of that equation and it was all this waiting and all this talk, and all the speculation and the number per school per year is about $25 million, then you look much more foolish on, on that front. And look, people are going to try to find a way to get a, get a negative perception out there, the PAC 12, I think one way or, or the other, which is a longer conversation as to why. But I, I think that if you're the PAC 12, it is all about the deal. Now you didn't want to fight the PR campaign. You haven't gotten the deal done. 
you continue to have these quotes on the record about, yeah, we're going to beat the Big 12. Well, if you don't, that is going to blow up from from a perception standpoint in your face pretty hard. And, and you know, the Pac-12 perception, I think, is pretty low across the board uh, nationally, at least outside of the Pac-12 footprint, but even within the Pac-12. Like, that, I know a lot of Pac-12 fans who are really, really down on, you know, the whole situation, how the league looks, and it's it's not been great. So you have to be able to deliver there, and I think that is going to entirely uh, change or not change the, the narrative around the Pac-12 conference as a whole right now. Fantastic stuff. Spencer McLaughlin, uh, get a good day off rest of golf and then get back at it check him out on locked on ducks locked on pac 12 podcast uh spencer thank you for your time my friend hey john it's great to be on with you happy to come on anytime there he is spencer mclaughlin love his energy man uh, i was a guest on his podcast that, that episode should post soon and i said to him why don't you come on my show and talk about all this stuff because he is sky high on the cow bears steven what you, you, are you buying? What he's selling there? No, I'm not. Um, <laughs> but I, I love I love the optimism, and I mean, you know, Wilcox is a great coach. Like I had a lot of faith in him last year. They kind of failed me a little bit. You know, I I've done my 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 pre my pre rankings of the Pac-12. I picked all the games. I had Cal at three, so uh, I got him below below the four and a half. Well, let's see what happens. So, uh, coming up, I'll give you what I know on the Pac-12 front. Plus, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the Ducks and the Beavers in the context that Spencer mentioned them. I agreed with some of what he said, but not all of it. Leave it here. Anna is preparing the five at five, the five biggest stories as she sees them. They are rarely the same five stories that I think are the uh, biggest stories of the day, but she'll be joining us coming up. It's always entertaining. In the meantime... Punch it audio, the best sound from all around. We've got it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Chris Haynes, uh, NBA reporter. Plugged in with Camp Lillard, says Damian Lillard just wants a shot. Just wants a puncher's chance. Punch it. And so from Dame's standpoint, I know he's going to go into with the mindset that he's been patient all these years. And he wants to play on a team that has a chance. One thing about Dame that I can say, you guys know how close I am with Dame. One thing I can say about him, like he doesn't want to be on a team that is just stacked. He doesn't want to, he, he doesn't want to have a team where it's just three all-stars or three superstars and then they go in and battle that way no he just wants a team that has a shot and if you look at the teams that he's, he's been on all throughout his career he's, he's never really had a shot and now joe cronin step stick i believe joe cronin just finished his second year as general manager so this is a different regime but they're they're kind of selling the same or going over the same talking points and so Dame is Dame is trying to give the organization time to come up with something. That's all Dame is asking for. Come up with something. Come up with something. Is and in most industries this this would be all backwards. You know, you would never look at star employee and go, "Well, wait a minute. Why why is that person being treated as if he's the owner of the franchise?" Well, part of the problem with Portland is they don't have an owner. There is no face of the franchise. It's just Lillard. I get it. He wants a shot. We've talked in circles about this. 
Um, you know, I think he's been more than loyal by NBA standards. But also, I will quote Don Draper. You know, when people say to me, Dame deserves a ring, I cringe. Deserves? Like, it, as part of every NBA contract that players should have a be entitled to the right to a ring? I don't think so. Look, uh, he's giving them time to come up with something. I guess that means he's being patient. He wants to be viewed as the good guy. But in the end, we all kind of know where this is going. It's a standoff between the past of the Blazers and the future of the Blazers, and Damian Lillard is standing firmly in the middle. Chauncey Billups, looking at the Blazers' draft picks, says they may be rookies, but they don't play like them. Punch it. You know, obviously we, we got work to do, Bill. You know, um, I'm so I'm just so happy that how Thursday turned out. And I think that already, you know, we've upgraded some talent, you know, on our team. And the way that I see these guys is obviously their age, they're pretty young. They don't play that way, you know. Um, their IQ is different than the normal guy their age. Um, it's a reason why they're here. We handpicked all of them um, for those reasons. Handpicked. That's what a draft is, Chauncey. Uh, Chauncey Billups says they don't play like rookies. He better hope so because part of his job security and his future lies in the ability of Scoot Henderson, among others, to come in and contribute. Um, Henderson uh, talked in his Blazers news conference. Um, you know, he talked about playing in the G League and, uh, and you know, as a rookie or a first-year player in the G League, telling veteran players what to do. Here's Scoot punching. You know, I, I'm, I'm blessed that I did the two years at Ignite uh, as a pro, you know, having to tell, man, Pooh, who's 20 years older than me, where to go on the court. So um, something I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to get comfortable with that, and, and I'm, I'm going to embrace it. You know, that, that's the thing I could do, embrace that, and embrace that. You know, I got a lot of responsibility, but, you know, it comes with, you know, just the work ethic. I always go back to that. You know, I work on things like that, you know, just talking and, Little stuff like that in my game that, that I think I can really go far. Yeah, I look, I, I like a lot of what Scoot Henderson had to say. I again though I will come back to this. Like the Blazers made the pick at three. They picked the best avail- available player in their mind. I think they got a player that would not be there and would not have been available in a draft that didn't have Victor Wembanyama. Scoot Henderson could have been the number one pick in other drafts. And so I think the Blazers did the right thing by making that pick. Um, and I, you know, I'm not going to say their future's bright because I'm not going to sell you a, a line of goods because the future could be dismal, like the near future. But you have to plan for your future. And, you know, just like we talked about the construction of the roster of the Denver Nuggets, it's, it's incremental steps that in the end, when you look back, you go, gosh, they did 15 things that made sense and, and helped lead them to, you know, the Western Conference Finals or to the NBA Finals. This could be one of those steps for the Blazers. And so by virtue of that, they had to take it. Greg Sankey is the commissioner of the SEC. He's talking to Joel Klatt here about NIL. Anybody else tired of hearing college administrators talk NIL? I am, but I also know how damn important it is. Here's Sankey. Punch it. I don't think there's anyone right now who says we stop or we pull pull fully back to where we were. Mm Mm-hmm. But in essence, we have to think about the protections for young people so that they're not signing for what seems like a lot of money at 18 years old. And all of a sudden, they're a first-round draft pick at 23, and they realize there's an entanglement, and now they're in a court case. 
uh, without the type of cleanliness around these deals that, that would be much more optimal. Yep. We have to adjust this system. Yeah. And we need help to do it, to do it properly. Yeah, need help to do it. But yeah, that, I kind of look back at the NCAA's role in that. And I, and I get it. I like Sankey. And I, what, what I like about Sankey is he came up in college athletics. You know, he was at Ithaca College as a intramural uh, advisor. That's where he started his college career. And he ends up as one of the most powerful people in college athletics. He knows the game. He knows the sport. He knows the our organization that is the NCAA. But I also think that the NCAA blew this in such a way that it's going to be hard to put this thing back together again without, you know, there being a lot of collateral damage. And I think that's what we're seeing. I agree with Sankey. You well, need to, the college game needs help. And this is one of the things my wife told me from her convention was that she was saying these high school kids are signing contracts with people and firms and they're guaranteeing 2% of their lifetime earnings, whether they make the professionals or lot or not, because they're not reading these contracts. So if someone goes and becomes a teacher, they still owe these people 2% of their contract. Like, this is going to happen where it's going to be messed up and players aren't going to understand what they're signing because they just want to be part of the NIL world. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of downfall to this as well as we go further and further unless there is, like, you know, rules that cap these uh, and, you know, help these young people out because, that, you know, I understand from their point, they want to make as much money as they can, but they're losing money in the back end and it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I think they're going to need intervention. I also think that... They, college athletics may have to make a decision at some point like do they you know you're watching a draft in which several of the top players and many of the players picked in the first round could have easily either did skip college or could have skipped college and so i'm just kind of wondering at what point like how different does college basketball feel if everybody goes to college and stays in two or three years will the nfl because of the the fact that the nfl uses college football is a minor league system will the nfl be I, I guess better equipped to handle or the will college football be a better place relative to college basketball i don't know man i i'm watching too much movement in college basketball and a draft that to me like i didn't know some of the players because either they didn't play college at all or they barely played college and it bothered me on draft night Antonio Brown doing a lot of media. Remember when he walked off the field against the Jets? He's talking to Tyreek Hill in this interview. Punch it. These guys don't even care. So now I come playing the game. I'm hurt. Like I'm in my zone. I'm super hurt. And it's like, yo, I might hurt myself more. And they're they not really trying to put me in a good position. Like I'm not out here to hurt myself. I'm out here to help you guys win. I mean, getting the ball, help you move the chains, get in the zone. So right now, we had a different time right now. You guys not trying to see none of that. You guys is mixing me with like, he don't want to work with me. I'm paying him. You don't want to throw me the ball and you making me like I'm crazy. So it's like, I'm crazy? F*** all you motherfuckers. I'm out of here. <laughs> Antonio Brown, is he helping himself, Steven? Or hurting himself by doing media. I get why he's going public. I'd say no. I'd say that's hurting him. I mean, it, it, it's not really making sense. I mean, I maybe he's just crazy. I don't know. I don't want to say anything bad that he's crazy because he might come after me, John. But I don't think he's helping himself with these type of things. Like, we all know, like, he just went off the, went off the end here, off the edge. And he freaked out and he left the team and he'll never be back in the NFL. Yeah, and I think uh, I look at him now. He's got this lawsuit where players are 
suing him for withholding their pay. And I think he's gone public in his own way here to try to uh, rectify his image, but I'm not sure it's going to help him. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. i got some thoughts, as I promised, on the Ducks, the Beavers, and a little bit more of what I know on the Pac-12 front. I'll share it next. Well, we got resolution uh, over the weekend, Stephen, on the submersible that was headed down to the Titanic. Didn't end well for the five souls that were aboard. I'm not going to make a bunch of jokes about it. Everybody made jokes about it. Somebody asked me if Larry Scott, the Pac-12, former Pac-12 commissioner, was in charge of that thing or responsible for that thing. No, Larry Scott was not responsible for it. And I actually don't think Larry Scott would be caught anywhere near that kind of submersible. He's a uh, first cabin guy, and uh, I didn't see first cabin accommodations in that submersible. But I was uh, fascinated by some of the uh, physicists and some of the um, scientists who were weighing in on the uh, implosion of that craft. Did you read any of that? Did you look into any of that, Stephen, on how fast? Those people that were on board probably didn't know what happened to them. Because by the time it was happening and they were blinking, they were gone. I mean, which is probably best case scenario for them, right? Is that like, a good way to go? I would think so. I would rather that way than, I mean, you've already, you're already down in the water and you're already suffering enough. At least that way it's just like, and it's done. Like we don't, it's just rip a bandaid off of it. I, I think that's the way I'd want to go. Just ripping a bandaid off. So, uh, of course... I had to look into this, and I looked into sort of the science of, you know, when, how fast, at what depth, what likely happened. And as it turns out, and I will uh, probably get some of this wrong, but I'm going to try to paraphrase what I learned, um, the implosion at that depth that they were at, the, the absolute pressure per square inch was it was staggering. And so... Um, one physicist said that they would have seen maybe if, you know, if you could see it happen from a third point of view, you would have saw a flash of light as it sort of, uh, imploded on it and collapsed on itself. But the people who were aboard it, by the time they could see that in one millisecond, it would have been over for them. And it takes about a hundred milliseconds to get, um, the feeling of pain. Like uh, from from your uh, from your brain to your body, and um, so probably didn't feel pain, probably vaporized in a way that um, would have uh, happened instantaneous. And I keep saying, like, I, I especially was thinking about that kid who was on board. You know, the 19-year-old and the stories coming out about, you know, uh, the fact that he uh, did, you know, he was brought there by his dad. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I like I keep coming back to like, well, at least he had that because I think, too, like, you know, we've talked a lot about death on this show. Like, I'm fascinated and I'm preoccupied with, you know, I, I am one of these people that would want to know how I was going to die when I was going to die. Like, I would want to know that, like, you know, and people I've heard other people that would say, no, I wouldn't want to know it. I actually would want to know it. But apparently the people who were on that submersible did not know that it was the end. Like, by the time they could have seen what was happening, it would have been over and then uh, reduced essentially to a gel-like substance at the bottom of the uh, ocean and part of the circle of life. 
And for those of you who think that's morbid, we're all part of the circle of life in theory. So there you have it. Um, do you think this is going to, um, so to speak, end the, the adventure seekers who are doing this stuff, like going to outer space, going down to the bottom of the ocean, going places that, you know, folks, regular folks can't afford to go? No, I want to make it more popular. Like more people are aware of that this kind of stuff happens. I didn't know that you could go and do this if I had $250,000 extra to go do. I mean, I, not that I would because we've talked about this. I, I, you know, I'm not a, not a friend of the ocean. The ocean's not a friend of me, but I think it's uh, getting more and more publicity. And I think more people are going to be uh, seeking, seeking the thrill. I don't know, man. I think once uh, first, and here's another thing. Like I, I had a engineer tell me that, the governmental regulations that come with, like, flying, getting an aircraft, a, a commercial aircraft in the air. Like, there's just a series of steps and hoops and tedious things. Like, you know, how many of us have been on an airplane and you're on the tarmac and you're ready to go home and they say, hey, we have an issue. Our mechanics are checking it out. Like, we've all been there. Uh, and I had one of those engineers say, like, look, we all roll our eyes when we see like governmental agencies involved in like safety checks and stuff like that but then you kind of look at you know what was happening here in the submersible uh you know whatever submarine industry the uh private commercial submarine industry and you go oh like you know maybe that some of these things are necessary to help avoid like catastrophic outcomes and probably that's what's going to happen that'll be the byproduct because all of the money that was spent on search and rescue, all of the attention it got, I have to think what we're going to see is legislation saying, hey, you can't just be some Yahoo with a uh, tin can trying to get yourself to the bottom of the uh, of the ocean and see the Titanic. Uh, go watch it on YouTube. And oh, by the way, that brings me, that's a great segue, uh, to the Pac-12 conference. Now, the Pac-12 conference, I'm not, I'm not comparing it with the Titanic. I'm just saying... The Pac-12 conference uh, has a deadline, so to speak, or had one of June 30th. I'm being told now by a source in the Pac-12 CEO, CEO group that we should not expect news this week on the Pac-12 media deal. I'll tell you more about that in Hour 3. But Pac-12 is close. I believe they're exploring expansion. I, I would lean towards saying that SMU and San Diego State are going to be Pac-12 members gun to my head that's what i would i would predict but i'll give you more in hour three on what i think is going to happen in the next 12 days i don't think a media deal by june 30th now but i think it's going to spill over into early july i'll tell you more about that coming up you got the bald face truth statewide the five at five is coming up with anna on the bft radio network leave it right here you got the bft statewide Anna has stepped into the studio. She is uh, scrambling around doing stuff for the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. That will be Thursday, right here on the station you're listening to. You'll hear celebrity golfers and sponsors, but you'll mostly hear from celebrity golfers who will be appearing on this show. 22, 23 of them in total on this show, including Miss Oregon, Neil Lomax, Former uh, NFL Pro Bowl quarterback. Also, Bobby Gross, 1977 Trailblazers world champion, will be uh, part of the event. Uh, who else will be there? Mark Wazakowski, the Oregon baseball coach. He'll be out on the course as one of the celebrity golfers. 
You'll also uh, get personalities like Alex Molden, former NFL defensive back. Scott Ruick will be there. Oregon State women's basketball coach. Mike Walter, three-time Super Bowl champion, will be on the course. A couple of umpires, Jimmy Joyce and Dale Scott, both out on the course. Marcus Harvey, the CEO and founder of Portland Gear, will be out there. Shantae Leggins, University of Portland men's basketball coach. Among the guests who you'll hear from on this radio show, Stephen Vaughn and Judah Newby will be on the call from the Reserve Golf Course. The whole event sponsored by High Caliber Millwrights. Thanks to Brandon and the crew for sponsoring, for buying in, and for making a lot of smiles happen for kids in the community. It'll be a great event. Make sure you tune in Thursday. It'll be radio like you don't normally hear sports radio, but a lot of good storytelling out on the golf course. And I want to thank our sponsors, but in particular, High Caliber Millwrights, the presenting sponsor. They make it possible. Anna, thanks for scrambling around. Yeah. Doing what you do. Are you happy to do it? And I always am surprised when we get to hole number one on the golf course (laughs) and uh, we are not warmed up. It's kind of like that time we ran a 5K Uh and we were like, oh, the race is starting. We haven't stretched yet. Every year. We just sprint it. So uh, I think if you are a uh, fan of golf and you are a fan of amusement, you could even go out to the uh, golf course. And we've had people show up in years and want to get photographs with Bobby Gross and Mike Walter and Neil Lomax and Miss Oregon and all that. but It's a who's who, you might say. You might say. Uh, but also, you can just tune in. It's okay. Save yourself the drive uh, to the reserve as well. Uh, but you're, you haven't played much golf. Uh, no, I haven't. But, you know, this time of year, I'm always reminded of all the amazing companies, the small businesses in our community that chip in because... You know, they're doing it because they want to help kids. In, ship in. See, See what, what I did there? Yeah. Um, no, like I'm I'm literally like going to shoe mill headquarters and picking up gift cards from shoe mill. By the way, defending champions. Yeah. Yeah. They were so excited when they won last year and the, hoisted that I'll never giant forget, trophy. I'll never forget their faces when they were informed that they won. <laughs> Total shock. Disbelief. It, it was like <laughs> Miss, you know, let's just pick. It was like Miss South Dakota just won. You know, Miss USA. Yeah. Miss South Dakota never wins Miss USA. <laughs> you know, they those guys were out there having fun yeah. playing golf. Yeah. And they almost accidentally won the tournament. And they had Shante Leggins, who, by the way, the celebrities are drafted by the teams, if you don't know the format of the tournament. So you play as a foursome, and then you draft your fifth golfer. And so the draft becomes very interesting because some of the teams – are actually looking for really good golfers who are going to help them win the tournament. And other teams are going, oh, I'm just interested in this person. I want to have a conversation with them over 18 holes. They seem like a fun person. Let's draft him. So I remember when Schumill drafted Shante Leggins, he's a basketball coach. They were like, hey, it would just be nice to get to know him. Yeah. They found out he's a pretty good golfer. <laughs> and they won the damn thing. Yeah. That helps, doesn't it? So we'll see as they uh, – they uh, try to defend their championship this year. They have drafted Shantae Leggins again. So wow. he'll play with Team Shoemill. Second Looking for year a row. repeat. But they had to move up in the draft board to get him. <laughs> like, you know, they moved up to number three to pick him. So Did they trade a future, a future pick or something for it? They uh, they traded Yusuf Nurkic and, uh, <laughs> and picked 23 to get all the way up there. Um, 
But what else you were going? You were waxing. Go no, ahead. I was just saying. I mean, I I'm just humbled by the folks that that help out because they're helping out in all different ways. They know that the goal of this is to raise money for Camp Exceptional, which is our all-inclusive sports camp. It's for kids with and without disabilities that are neurotypical <laughs> and neurodivergent. You Why is said, that funny? Because you said all-inclusive, like it includes beverages and meals. <laughs> not like no, that. It's not all-inclusive. That's where your mind is. It, it's a camp for kids who have challenges yes. and kids who are typical. Yeah. So it's inclusive. It's inclusive. But it's not all-inclusive. <laughs> like you don't get a wristband and a margarita when you show up at camp. <laughs> well, okay. Know. We'll Steven's going to be there, like, going, hey, it's all inclusive. I'm signing up for the camp. What, I mean, Where's the hot tub? Jeez. I was promised food. <laughs> Trying to, like, pay these folks okay. a compliment. Okay, go ahead. And you keep interrupting. You were waxing. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's, it's just cool, you know, because, like, literally my job in these few days is to go around and collect stuff from uh, the sponsors that are participating and, and showing up in big ways. And... You know, I'm gathering items that they're donating for the VIP swag bags, like to thank the celebrities for giving their time and energy, 18 holes of golf, to come out and help the kids. And these are these are going to be nice, nice little swag bags. You know, for the VIPs. It's yeah, not why the they VIPs. do it, though. No, it's, it's not, not why, why they do it. But I'm 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 happy that you know the folks like at Jamba and Shoe Mill and Sport Oregon, they're all in Portland gear, you know, they're all throwing stuff in the bag, and I appreciate that. like that. You know what? Maybe someday I'll be a celebrity golfer in this event, and I can get <laughs> a swag bag. Maybe. In the meantime, you know, like Bull Run Distillery is putting in whiskey bottles. Yeah. Okay? That's not bad. Jamba's throwing in, Shoe Mill, uh, Sport Oregon, as you mentioned, uh, among others, yeah. uh, who are... Uh, Slipping things into the swag. Great bag. stuff. These are not just little wristbands or. You think one of the know, Kardashians cheapy, is going to show up trying to get one of these pens. bags? These are these are quality items yeah. in these bags. What would uh, what would like Stars, you know? They're just like us. You know how when people get on the red carpet, <laughs> they get a swag bag yeah. at, at those events. Yeah. What would what could we put into the swag bags that would get maybe another tier of celebrity? I looked this that, you know what? It's funny. I looked that up because I was just curious. Like, who has that random knowledge in their head? Like, what goes into a swag bag that makes it special? But often for the Oscars, they have, you know, customized items, mm. like things that are embroidered or printed. I'm not embroidering. I got two, three days here. <laughs> said celebrity's name on them. Um, there's often, like, one-of-a-kind you know, like Louis Vuitton will oh, yeah. throw in a one-of-a-kind clutch or something like that. We're not that, putting you know? Louis Vuitton in this tournament, in these people's bags. No, Bobby, we're, Bobby we're Gross, Bobby Gross is not going to go, oh, I want a Louis Vuitton bag. <laughs> I texted with him today because yeah. I always confirm with the celebrities and I thank them. Yeah. Because it's time out of his day totally. that he's taking. And that's one of the most valuable resources yeah. they can give. And it's really interesting. You know, I might write about this at some point. It's kind of an interesting story to me. So you got Bobby Gross, 77 Blazers championship team. Mike Walter, who is a former Oregon Duck linebacker who played for the 49ers, three Super Bowl wins. And Tom Gorman, who grew up in the Portland metropolitan area, became a pitcher in the big leagues for the Phillies and the Mets. These three guys play golf all the time. <laughs> and so when I get one of them to play... It doesn't matter which one I reach out to first. 
they will all say, hey, are, are you going to invite Tom and Bobby? Or are you going to invite oh, Mike really? and Tom? Are you going to invite? And like one of them speaks for all of them. Yeah. They come as a package. Oh. And it's really interesting to me that they do this. So like, you know, I hadn't really heard from Bobby Gross, but Mike Walter told me Bobby was in. Okay. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so today I said, hey, you know, Bobby, you were a high draft pick. I just want to confirm that you're going, I want to hear it from you that you're going to be there. And he's like, absolutely, I'm going to be there. <laughs> and so I just thought to myself, it's pretty cool that these guys are like, A, you know, they probably love to play golf and they love to be out. But there are other things they could be doing. Sure. Instead of playing golf and raising money for a children's charity. Well, with like four people they don't know, likely. Yeah. Right? And, and hey, That's Bobby, a long day to tell, spend with people what was it you like, don't know. Yeah. What was it like to play with Bill Walton? Right. Tell that story for the thousandth time. Right. But... But, you know, it, I'm just grateful that they give their time. And I said to him, I said, hey, you do this every year. I'm grateful for it. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, it makes me feel like, you know, there are some players in Blazers history that you, you probably wouldn't give their time. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then there's some others who just, you know, come out and, you know, every year they're there for you. Yeah. And he's one of them. And here's another, here's another fun fact about the tournament. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen, you'll love this. Uh, Terrell Brandon's plan, okay? Pretty pretty big deal. Yeah. He's playing as a normal golfer. Oh. He did not want to be a celebrity golfer. Really? He wants to play with the players that are on his team, Yeah. his friends. Yeah. So Terrell Brandon and his team had a chance to draft a celebrity golfer. What? And I think it's going to be really interesting when Alex Molden shows up. And realizes that Terrell Brandon picked <laughs> Alex Molden as his celebrity golfer. <laughs> so when you get Alex Molden or Terrell Brandon and that foursome that comes around on Thursday, guys, make sure you, uh, you know, with the second pick, because I think they had the second pick uh -huh. in the uh, BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament, uh, as Adam Silver announced it you know, over the weekend, um, <laughs> you know, it was high caliber millwrights. I believe it was the A team chose Alex Molden, mm -hmm. but Terrell Brandon's playing on that team. How about that? So I think Alex Molden could feel good about that. You yeah. know? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Not, it's not like getting picked first on the playground, but come on. It's close. <laughs> Let's do the five at five. Five biggest stories as Anna sees them. The five at five. The number one story, Anna. Well, I'm starting with this one just because... He's local. Um, have you guys talked about Chael Sonnen yet? No. Like, ever? No, like today. <laughs> no, not today. So Sonnen's claiming that Mark Zuckerberg, you know, okay. Meta, yeah. Facebook, uh, personally called him okay. to reveal that a fight between Zuckerberg and Elon Musk would go down at UFC 300. Okay. He swears up and down that this conversation happened. He said his own son, Ethan, his producer, uh, was his witness. Or his producer, Ethan, was his witness. And his son, Thero, and his dog, Duke, uh, were all witnesses to this phone call. Now, there's a lot of talk today about this on social media. Yeah. Like, is Zuckerberg really going to fight Elon Musk? Well, it's definitely a gimmick. Can we start with that? But Zuckerberg's 
Zuckerberg's people are saying that this is not true, that it's absolutely not true, that no such conversation ever took place. So I don't know. I don't know it's what's like going It's like celebrity deathmatch on MTV. Yeah. You know, like what would happen if. Yeah, but um, Dana White, who, of course, is promoting oh, UFC. Yeah, he's going to jump all over. Is saying that both sides are dead serious about fighting. Do you want to see them fight? I, no. I, I actually do. I don't. I Why don't, don't want to see you them fight. Why don't you want to see fight? them fight? Because I think it's ridiculous that Zuckerberg is, like, don't you have enough to do? This is like billionaires, I don't they know. They actually don't. I think they're bored. There's they're bored. no There's no way they're fighting. Because whoever loses that fight is going to get trolled by everybody. There's nothing to win in that situation. They're already trolled by everybody. I, yeah, I mean, exactly. And then now you're going to be trolled because you lost a fight to another nerd. I mean, it's just, I don't know. There's nothing well, to maybe, win that Maybe that afterwards we could watch like John Jones and George St. Pierre like do code, you know, like code a program. <laughs> Would you sign up for that, Stephen? Yeah, that's like no? e-gaming, right? <laughs> I, I actually think this would be good. Make it for charity. The question I have is who would you root for? Well, let's look at the stats. Okay. Zuckerberg is 39. Musk is 51. Okay. I can't believe we're doing this. Advantage Zuck. I did not know Zuckerberg's 5'7". Elon Musk is 6'1". Advantage Elon. You got an American versus a native South African. Advantage Zuck. And uh, you Amer have... Americans fight dirty. Okay? USA. You yeah. You have a 100 billionaire versus a 246... Billionaire. Who is uh, who's the hard scrabble underdog that. in that one? That would be Zuck. Yeah, is yeah. he the underdog here? He's from the mean streets. Their 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 discipline, as the senseis like to say, is that Zuckerberg's trained in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and Musk reportedly is trained in karate, taekwondo, and judo. I think uh, I, I would take. Like, at face value, I would want to pick Elon Musk, but I think I would take Zuckerberg to win. I think he's probably going to work really hard at it, and I think I think Elon could be a big disappointment in the ring, the octagon. Steven, who would you like in that fight? Uh, yeah, my initial thought was Musk, but you yeah. might be right. I, th I think he may just take it not as serious, and he thinks he's going to yes. roll in there and be fine, and then he's not because he's not a fighter. So I think I think I'm with you. Zuckerberg will win. And I've heard some things about Zuckerberg. So like just that that's really vague. Jim. No, I just heard that when you know when he commits himself to something, he's maniacal about it, right? Like, haven't but, you heard the same thing about Elon? No, Musk? look at what he does. What's he doing? SpaceX, Tesla, Twitter. What's yeah. he doing? Yeah. He's all over the place. I think he. I think he's on the spectrum. Like they probably both are. But I think, I think he's just kind of scattered in his thoughts. Uh -huh. And you know, I think he's just kind of look. You know, he'll go dabble. Yeah, he, he's more of a dabbler. Uh huh. Don't you think so? I don't know. I don't know these people. Who's well, gonna win? Well, Reagan Sherwood just tweeted us and said, "Tweeted us and said Zuckerberg's been doing uh, jujitsu lately and has won tournaments. He's jacked. So I'm gonna go uh, on a YouTube vortex here yeah. and find those. He's younger. He's jacked. He's been winning tournaments. But and his girl's gonna be ringside. You know, he, Zuck's girl will be girl? there. Girl, yeah, as in his wife, his Priscilla, wife. Elon. <laughs> you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows? But isn't this whole thing like? Okay. Ridiculous? Yes. Isn't it kind of vain? Yes. Th that was my whole point. Like, I'm annoyed by it, but I'm also intrigued Why by it. Why don't they hold the fight and they give the money to the BFT Foundation? Yeah, that sounds good. 
Okay, that could be a game changer. I'll show up for that. It just cracks me up every time I see the, the video of Zuckerberg, you know, <laughs> in the ring. I don't know. I don't know. Good for him. Okay, let me ask you then. Uh, who wins Shannon Sharp, Skip Bayless in the octagon? No no takers there. Well, I I mean, just by the size of their shoulders, Sharp, <laughs> sharp right? Yeah. Like, I only know Skip, what these people look like Skip from Skip runs the around wa- looking for the gate. From the waist up. I've never, I don't know how tall they are. I only know the, the broadness of their shoulders. Who so. wins Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady in the octagon? Oh, Aaron Rodgers. Really? Yeah. Oh, Brady. Brady would clobber him. Oh, really? Brady's eating protein. He's eating real meat. Rogers is too yeah. cool. Aaron's in there curling up into a ball. Fight. You know, I think Aaron Rodgers would actually drop. You'd be that fighter that drops to his back <laughs> and tries to kick fight. <laughs> Just kick Tom Brady. Watching these Zuckerberg videos, by the way, yeah, he's winning. He's, Zuckerberg's he's, a real fighter. He's a fighter, yeah. But my question is... If you're the guy that's picked to go up against Zuckerberg, are you really going all in? I mean, isn't like, isn't it like when like, you know, Michael Jordan goes and plays a, a, a pickup game of basketball, which I don't know. we've never known that he's done. But I don't know. I don't know. But Zuckerberg recently completed the Murph Challenge. Do you know what the Murph Challenge is? <sighs> I know. You know, no. he did the Murph Challenge. It's this uh, grueling workout that you have to do in under 40 minutes. I'm reading about it right yeah. now. If Steven's watching YouTube videos of Zuckerberg <laughs> choke people out. There's no videos of Elon Musk choking anybody. And that's why this show's the best. <laughs> Is Zuckerberg having an early midlife crisis? That's what it feels like to me. I don't know. It's like, hey, I gotta go. You I know, go Z- my Zuck ran a 5K under 20 minutes and then <sighs> went and ran and entered a jujitsu tournament and won it. Mm-hmm. I like that I'm calling him Zuck now. Zuck. Like we yeah. know each other. Yeah. Here's the Murphy workout. 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, run a mile while wearing a 20-pound weighted pack. You have to do it under 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Easy. Mm-hmm. All right. Number two story as wow. you see it. We spent a lot of time on Yeah, I like line. that, though. What's number two? Can't Paula wait. Bencaro, uh apparently has decided to play for Team USA, and it's really ticking off the Italian Basketball Federation president. He recently swapped his commitment. He's opting to play for Team USA in the Traitor. upcoming FIBA World Cup. Uh, he'd previously made a verbal commitment to play for Italy, but he's had a change of heart, and his decision left Gianni Petrucci irritated. He sounded off on the betrayal from Bancaro, labeling the late change as a joke. Betrayal is a big word, he says. In sports, these things happen, and personally, I'm used to it. I consider it a joke. I don't know. They haven't heard of the portal, have they? The <laughs> transfer portal, international basketball style. Uh, he was he gained Italian citizenship in 2020, uh-huh. said he wanted to play at the Tokyo Olympics. Those were COVID-19 scrapped. Yeah. And then... Went to the NBA. This is clearly his agent, his camp going, hey, getting a gold medal is better for you than getting nothing. Play for USA instead of Italy. And the Italians don't like it. So, you know, he did say he was going to play for them. If you say you're going to play for them, you should have to play for them. So now he is uh, backing out. Traitor. He wants the gold medal. Uh huh. Number three, go. 
so James Harden's future with the team has been up in the air, the Sixers. Um, but according to ESPN, the Sixers are motivated to bring him back, and they may be willing to go as far as necessary in negotiations to do so. I think mm. the term that's being used is up to a max contract, near the max contract, near like maybe a max contract. That's sort of unofficially the term. He'll be 34 when the season yeah. starts next year, so uh, I guess good for him if he can land that. Yeah, right? he's, he's got a year, a player option remaining on his contract at $35.6 million. So he's going to opt out and see what his market is. Is he making a mistake by opting out, Stephen, or is there a, a strong market still for James Harden out there? I don't think it's a mistake. I think, I think he's making the right choice. And, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see what Philadelphia does because there's been a lot of talk that he's going to go back to Houston and they would give him a big contract, but I mean, Philadelphia can offer offer him more. So I, I don't know, man. I I think it's I think it's the right move. I think there's going to be not a huge bidding war, but he'll he'll at least get his money back. Number four story. Do you guys care about Formula One? Because some people apparently do. It's supposedly it's growing in the U.S. and actors like Ryan Reynolds are getting in on the action. Uh, F1 announced today that a group of investors called Alpine, Alpine, uh, that includes Ryan Reynolds, uh, will be putting in $218 million to bring Formula One racing into the U.S. That's an F1 team. It includes uh, Michael B. Jordan as well. And Rob McElhaney. I don't quite know how to say his name. These are actor folk. Um, they've acquired 24% stake in the F1 team. So the overall valuation of the team is $982 million. Wow. Would you rather have a piece of a pickleball league or one of these Formula... Yeah. What are they? Formula One? Formula One. Formula, Formula One team. I think uh, I think pickleball. Really? Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't mind motorsports. It's just not my thing. It's but just which not. one has the more, like, investor... No, you're value, thinking rationally like now. Return on investment potential. I'm thinking, which one do I want to go see, or you know, do I want to be at a <laughs> cocktail party or a barbecue and go, hey, yeah, I got a piece of a Formula One team. <laughs> I think Formula One's pretty fancy, though, John. Too fancy. It's too it's too fancy for me. Too what fancy for me too. Pickleballer. When you say fancy, what do you mean by fancy? Like, define that. He's in a seersucker suit at one of these events. A lot of good-looking people. A lot of good-looking people. He's got a rich. haircut. Yeah. Uh-huh. I can't just wear basketball shorts. He's yeah. get, he's walking around with like a $65 haircut. Okay. 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 I'm at a barbecue going, hey, I got a steak at a pickleball league. <laughs> I can say that. Uh-huh. Flip the burger. I'll have cheese on mine. See? Mm-hmm. See how that works? Yeah. Number five. Got it. Uh, Dennis Rodman doesn't think that Larry Bird could make it in today's NBA. You say this from North Korea? <laughs> he said it in an interview. I don't know what Vlad TV is, but that's where he said it. <laughs> he said Larry Bird wouldn't make it, would need to play overseas, and he also thinks that Nugget center Nikola Jokic is better than Larry Bird. Specifically, he said, if Larry Bird played in this era, I think he'd be in Europe. Today's world... Hell no, there's no way. I'm not downplaying him, which he actually is, because he's a great player at that time, just yeah. like I was. At that time. 
just uh, I mean, like I there was. is some truth in what he's saying because you know I do think the game has changed. I think it is a more. Uh, I don't want to offend older players. I think some of the athleticism we're seeing in the game today is is better. But Larry Bird was an incredibly skilled player and a competitor. I have no problem saying Larry Bird would win in any era. Steven. Larry Bird would be fine. He, he would figure it out to play in today's NBA. I, uh, it's just crazy that people even say these type of just irrational nonsense. Nonsense. Yeah, it's it's okay. nonsense. Every every good player that was in the 70s, he would have figured out how to play in the 80s. Same in the 90s, all the way to now. All the good players now would have figured out how to play back in the day when it was more physical. It, it's just craziness that people say these things. It, it's nonsense. There you have it. That's our five at five. Anna, thank you. You brought a lot of entertainment to that <laughs> I don't know. Steven's disgust with, disgust with number five there makes me feel guilty for even No, it no, up. but Dennis Rodman said it. But, yeah. You know, remember when Dennis Rodman went off on that CNN anchor? Do you remember that? I don't know. The list of things that Dennis Rodman has done is too long for me to... Yeah, I'm more disgusted with Dennis Rodman, not you, Anna. <laughs> All right. Yeah, here's Dennis Rodman, in fact, going off on that CNN anchor. We are the guys here doing one thing. We have to go back to America and take the abuse. Do you have to take the abuse? Well, we're going to take it. Do you, sir? Let me know. Are you going to take the abuse? We're going to get it. But guess what I do? One day, one day, this door is going to open. The door to North Korea. Mm -hmm. And he's going to, Larry Bird's going to come walking through, dribbling, bounce passing behind his back. You know, I sort of forgot that Dennis Rodman was like an ambassador to North Korea there for a hot minute. <laughs> I remembered more clearly that he was with Carmen Electra. Yeah. And then I you lost jogging some time. my memory now. You lost the, I did. the Kim Jong-un years. Yeah, yeah. Of Dennis's time. <laughs> um, Dennis, Dennis did a lot of interviews about that time. I'm my loyalty and my trustworthy to this country. And I said to everybody, I said, the door will open. I remember you saying it. I remember you saying it. Let me ask you something. Does Kim understand English, Dennis? No, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. When I said those things, when I said those damn things, when I went back home, I got so many death threats. I got so many death threats. I was sitting there protecting everything. And I believed in North Korea. And when I went home, I couldn't even go home. I couldn't even go home. I had to hide out for 30 days. Kim? Oh. Those years. The Kim Jong-un years. Those years. We lost some time there. I did. Yeah. I missed the Carmen Electric years. Yeah, that's what they did. Long for those years. Can I bring those back? All right. Leave it here. <laughs> Stephen, who in your family picks the vacation spots? Like, who makes that decision? Or is it a collaborative decision? You and uh, your wife, your wife, bring it to you. Like, who makes that decision? If you go, hey, we're going away or we're going camping or, you know, let's go rent a place here. Like, who makes that decision in your house? Uh, I would say mostly her. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's a lot of collaborative, but I would say she gets the final say. And, like, if it's because usually, you know, John, really, if I'm real, all I really want to do is go to Vegas and just relax by the <laughs> pool and hang out at the sports book. So, you yeah. know, if it's camping or something, it's all on her. And, you know, she comes up with those ideas. Do you enjoy camping? No, you, not even a little I'm bit. Not a, I'm not a big camper myself. 
and my wife's family are big campers, and I have to fake it. And everyone knows that I hate it, but it's funny. I think people enjoy it to see me just suffering. Yeah, I uh, I always say to Anna when she can't when she brings up camping, I'm like, that's why I work, so I don't have to sleep outside. Stay in you a know, hotel, like, yeah. Yeah, I I I that that's kind of why I work. But I I uh, I get it. Like she wanted to. Okay, so here here's what happened over the weekend. And here's why I was out Thursday, Friday. And, you know, her dad has made the trip from Taiwan. You know, his uh, his wife passed away. He's 77. He's staying with us and, you know, will probably continue to live with us. Like, you know, I, it looks like it's a long-term thing, and it's fine. And he's uh, he's got his feet underneath him, which I, I'm happy about that. But she wanted to take him to southern Oregon. And uh, Anna's mom lives down there. She's remarried. And she said it would be great if I could get my parents together and they haven't been together in the same place in years and they actually wanted to see each other and catch up. And so that was all nice. But so Anna booked a reservation at a place called Hyatt Lake Resort. Okay. Now, it's not a Hyatt it's not even a lake. It's a reservoir, as it turns out, once we drove like four and a half, five hours to get there. And it's not a resort, I got to tell you. And it was a kind of a, it was one of these places where it looked really cool online. But when you got there, it, the lake, the reservoir had dried up. There wasn't much of a reservoir. And it was uh, the cabins that looked awesome on the website were very small and we realized immediately in horror that there were like eight of us and we were not going to be able to stay in what was billed as an eight person cabin. We were going to have to rent a second cabin at the quote unquote resort. So what ensued was a big conversation <laughs> with me at the front desk with the person going, you know, you said this sleeps eight, but there's no way eight adults could sleep in this cabin. Now, that left me kind of sleeping on a pull-out sofa in the, uh, in the middle of the living room, which is fine. But it also had us renting a second cabin, so Anna's mom, Anna's nephew, uh, Anna's stepdad had a place to stay. They had nowhere to sleep. So we rent the second cabin. Uh, I look around the uh, place that we're staying, and I'm like, it's kind of dirty. Like, cigarette, you know, uh, leftover cigarette stuff, and trash, and it was a little bit broken down, like the window blinds didn't have things where you could open and close them, and so, but I, I kind of was ready to look past it all, because we're roughing it, you know, we're kind of out in this area, and then I walked down to the lake, and I went, there's no lake, the, you know. There's no, like, the the idea we had in our mind is that, we, you know, there would be paddle boarding or a canoe or maybe the kids could swim in the lake. And it was, there was no lake. It was kind of like a wildlife uh, wetlands. That's what was left of it. And uh, so then we tried to sleep. But anybody knows when you're sleeping on one of those pullout things, you're looking around at 3 o'clock in the morning going, this just isn't working. So I uh, I got up to use the restroom, and I ran into in the hallway several mice 
that were in the hallway of this cabin. Now I thought, I'm really roughing it here. But I actually, something occurred to me at like 3 o'clock in the morning as I was facing these mice in the hallway. Why are we so afraid of these little mice? Because I, I have to admit, I got scared when I saw these little mice. And I thought, they must be more afraid of me than I am of them. Like they scurried away some other place in this cabin. And I thought to myself, this cabin's not big enough for us plus these two mice. So by uh, morning time, of course, I was looking for like a uh, an overnight vacation rental place, which I did find an alternate place for us to go that was about 30 minutes away that was much nicer. It was newer. It was nicer. It could house us all. We had a great time, you know, salvaged. The trip was salvaged. And, in fact, the front desk, because they knew how annoyed we were, at the fact that it was neither a lake nor a resort and that they, they frankly didn't uh, probably have room for us to rent two places for the whole weekend. They allowed us to, uh, they gave us our money back on the remaining nights. But have you ever had a nightmare experience like that where it was just like all wrong, so wrong that you had to laugh at it? Uh, nothing like that. Um, <laughs> not, not, nothing that I can remember like that. We did, um, one time we did go camping and... We had the tent, but we didn't bring the poles, and so we uh, we did have to sleep in the car. Like we had the Whoops. car there, and so you know, whose fault was that? Uh, definitely not mine. Coach Vaughn's her fault on that one. Oh, she man. she did a minute, uh, but yeah. So we had to sleep like in the like lay the seats down and sleep in the back of the trunk, and it was uh, definitely not comfortable. But yeah, nothing like that where there's just mice running around or anything like that. I told the lady at the front desk as I was saying politely, like, "Hey, we're not going to stay here. Like, we're going to leave." Uh, I first told her, I said, none of this is your fault. You're just the employee that gets to deal with me. So I'm not going to come at you like, you know, I'm all angry at you. Because I, I do see people who do that in those customer service settings. And I'm always like, hey, are you sure it was that employee's fault? Like, they didn't take the beautiful pictures for the website that had all the new furniture and showed these beautiful cabins and the lake. And then you get there and it's like, nah, that's not happening. But uh, I said to her, you know, this none of this is your fault, but we're just not going to stay. And she was like, you're not the first person that's brought up all this stuff. And I go, but why? Like, I go, I would like to buy this resort that, you know, and I would like to fix it up, you know, maybe fill up the reservoir, make it into a real lake, put a dock in it, you know, come on. But I told her, I said, you know, it wasn't the worst night of sleep I ever had. I said, you know, it was uncomfortable. It was cramped. I was annoyed. The alarm clock, some poor soul set the alarm clock, by the way, for 4 a.m. Somebody was getting off to a nice early start on the Pacific uh, Coast Trail, left that alarm clock on at 4 a.m., so I got to turn that off. But um, the worst night of sleep I ever had came in 1988. I was a teenager, and a friend of mine and I decided that his parents had a camper, and unfortunately... We didn't think about sleeping bags or blankets because it seemed fine on a summer day just to get, be in the camper. And we said, we're going to spend the night in the camper. And uh, parents said, do not come knocking on the door at 3 a.m. trying to get into the house. It's going to be cold in there. You're going to be miserable. We thought we knew better. I got to tell you, it dropped to about 34 degrees. We had no blankets. I was wearing a T-shirt and shorts. It seemed fine on a summer day until it got cold. That was the worst night of sleep I ever had. Did, do you have a worst night of sleep ever? Pac-12 is crawling, jogging, walking towards a resolution on the media rights front. Uh, if you're just tuning in, 
I have been told by a member of the Pac-12 CEO group not to expect a bunch of news this week. That's not to say something couldn't happen, but at least that's how the week is starting. And a lot of people had been, I guess, tuned into the idea that June 30th was a deadline because of the Mountain West Conference giving San Diego State a June 30th deadline to inform the conference that they are leaving. But you know, those of you who are paying attention to this on the expansion front know that the Mountain West Conference believes that San Diego State has, in fact, given them that notification. Uh, it, there is some precedent for a Mountain West Conference team to opt out of the conference and then turn around and opt back in. Boise State and San Diego State did it in 2012. Remember, they joined the Big East, left the Mountain West Conference, then reversed course, got a better deal from the Mountain West Conference, and were welcomed back with open arms. So I believe that San Diego State and the Mountain West Conference, that whole fiasco that went down in the last 10 or 12 days, uh, has led the Pac-12 to believe that it, there isn't a deadline coming up on Friday for them to have to uh, give San Diego State some notice. If San Diego State is, in fact, opting out of the Mountain West Conference, um, I guess if you ask the Mountain West, they've already opted out. I also believe that San Diego State if you know, can formally, I guess, inform the Mountain West on Friday that they are opting out and then reserve the right to reapply for admission. That's how it would work. But I don't think it's going to come to that. I think the Pac-12 has probably assured San Diego State and or SMU that they are coming into the conference. I think we're going to get the resolution sometime in early July. I would be surprised if it happened uh, July 3rd or 4th or 5th. I think that you know holiday with the presidents being on vacation becomes kind of cumbersome. It's just not their style. So I'm looking at the week after that as it pertains to an announcement the week of July 10th through the 14th. I think that's kind of the drop dead deadline. And I forgive you if you're rolling your eyes because the goalposts have moved and moved and moved. But I'm being told there's no urgency now. The deadlines are off. Nobody feels like they have to do anything. But like a lot of you, I'm just ready to see this thing put to rest. The members continue to tell me that they're galvanized, engaged, they've never been anything else. And I think in the end, that's what they're going to sell publicly. What mistakes have the Pac-12 made? Plenty. Like, they made a PR mistake. Massive PR misfire in letting so much silence and so much time walk hand in hand for months and months and months. But somebody asked me today, they said, why is this taking so long? Here's my best solution on, or best answer to why it has taken the Pac-12 this long to arrive at sort of their destination with this media rights deal. I think it's taken this long in part, number one, that they were surprised last July when UCLA and USC announced that they were leaving for the Big Ten Conference. They were blindsided. George Klyovkov was driving. He was in the middle of Montana. He had to pull over. He had no cell reception. He got blindsided. Oregon, Oregon State, nobody knew this was happening. It, it surprised everybody. And so I think they were starting from, like, a standstill, literally, because they at first had to go, like, what is happening? What just happened? And then they had to go, what are we going to do? And you can remember July and August were spent with the Pac-12 CEO group saying, okay, we're going to issue a statement. We are going to now go to market early with our own media rights because we think this is important. And 
you know, they were trying to regroup. But we now know that all the way up until December, the Pac-12 was trying to lure UCLA back. In fact, they were hoping that the UC Regents were going to force UCLA to return to the conference. They believed that that was a plausible, uh, plausible scenario, that, that UCLA would return to the Pac-12. In fact, they believed it so much so that I am told that they were modeling media rights deals that included UCLA as late as mid-December, believing that they were going to lure the Bruins back and that all would be well and the, they'd still have L.A. as a TV market and they would probably just stand pat with 11 teams. And So I think they had to explore that scenario before they went anywhere else. So I do think that caused an initial delay after the shock of going, hey, can we get UCLA back? And I think that took them all the way probably to Christmas. And a lot of us were going, why don't they have a deal even in November and December? Well, I think the answer then was they were still kind of going, we're not closing the door on UCLA until we know UCLA is gone. And I think it, it kind of makes sense when you see it when you see that from 20,000 feet. Again, massive mistake to leave so much silence. So here comes January. Here comes February. They start to pivot. I reported in February that they were uh, exploring four expansion schools. I reported in late February and early March that the Pac-12 was beginning to see numbers and like the numbers, that they were still engaged. Remember, there were some national media members and some Big 12 footprint members who were screaming from the plains of uh, Kansas that the conference was done, over, imminent demise. I heard it over and over and over again, imminent demise, conference splintering, shattering, Pac-12 has nowhere to go. Uh, the Oregon didn't leave. Washington didn't leave. And, in fact, the Big Ten president said, hey, uh, we're not gonna. We're not in favor of further expansion. Kevin Warren left the Big Ten Conference. His contract was not renewed. Goes off to the NFL. Meanwhile, Pac-12 still meandering along, moving at a snail's pace. And I do blame the chancellors and presidents of the Pac-12 for moving slow, without alacrity, without purpose, and for letting so many other people tell their story. They allowed a vacuum that was filled with misinformation and and wishing and hoping from the Big 12 footprint. The 12 bots had at it. The uh, 12 anons went at it full force. And in the end, uh, I think the Pac-12 is to blame there. I think there were mistakes made from a branding, crisis management, and PR standpoint. I also think we saw the normalization of streaming start to really happen in March and in April. And all of a sudden, I think it became far more acceptable for the Pac-12 to maybe go with a larger you know, presence on a streamer. Apple, Amazon, we saw Paramount, we saw NBC Universal, we saw the NFL Sunday Ticket go to YouTube. ESPN came out and said, hey, all of our content will one day be on ESPN+. Plus. We're going we're gonna to be all in streaming at some point anyway. So I do think there was a recalibration that happened sometime in April, probably May. As the Pac-12 was trying to figure out, like, how much should we be streaming? Can we, can we take more money to go with a larger presence with a streamer? Then came the real expansion talk. And if the Pac-12 is really going to beat the Big 12's number, that annual distribution number of $31.6 million per year per school, they're going to need two more members, and they're going to need major media markets. Here comes Dallas, Fort Worth, and SMU, 3.9 million TV households. Don't tell me they don't rate. 
UCLA didn't rate in L.A. It's about the market, not the brand, first and foremost. And here came San Diego State, 1.16 million TV households. I think the Pac-12 is going to get there. They're going to get there in their own time. President's going to look up at the end and go, what was the harm? We got the deal. We made the number. I still have a problem with the fact that it took so long and the fact that they let so many other people tell their story. But I told you in the beginning that Pac-12 would stay together. The ten remaining members would be here, and I think that's where we're going to end up. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.